When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. by asking what should be an obvious question. What is milk? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, we, I think most of us, when we think of milk, we think of cow's milk, whole milk, skim milk, 2% milk, whatever it is, reduced fat milk, whatever, chocolate milk, milk, milk from a cow. And that has been a staple of the American diet for 60, 70 years. Now, whatever the you might say about milk, it used to be marketed to American parents and children as nature's perfect food. Now, the more that we've learned about dairy over the years, it's not looking so perfect as a food. But what, what else can be called milk? Buttermilk? Can that be called milk? Goat milk? Can that be called milk? Well... An interesting thing has occurred over the course of the last decade. Over the the course of the last decade, we've seen a variety of non-dairy milks emerge. You got soy milk. That was sort of the OG alternative non-dairy milk. But you got almond milk. We used to eat, drink almond milk in our house, but then we found out how much water it uses and it's not the best thing for the environment and all all sorts of other things. Oat milk, cashew milk, all of them have two things in common. One, they all have milk in their title. And two, they don't come from a cow or any other type of Animal. Now, if you think about it, this is a very big departure from what milk has been over the course of our entire lives. You think of milk as something that comes from the breast of an animal, be it a human, a cow, a goat, a sheep, whatever. And now all these folks are selling their milks near the dairy aisle, even though they don't contain dairy. So You know who's pretty fed up about this? The dairy industry. They don't like all these other drinks billing themselves as milk. And they don't want them using the name milk. Should they be able to? 800-848-9222. Should oat milk be able to be called oat milk? Why or why not? Now, um, the folks that market 
Milk have spent a lot of money not only on lobbying, not only on research, but on advertising over the years. It's funny. My son drinks whole milk. And I forget what he was eating the other day. Maybe it was a cookie. Maybe it was a letter of the day, Sesame Street cookie. Or maybe it was a um, – maybe it was – maybe it was even peanut butter. I don't remember. This was a week or two ago. And I my, – my wife said to him, oh, here, Carmine, have some milk. And uh, I said, yeah, you can have some milk and wash it down. And this way you, you – I'm handing him the bottle and I say, Owen Burr. And um, I'm expecting my wife to laugh. Carmine laughed, but that was because I was making a silly voice. And she didn't laugh. I said, and she, I did it again because I thought maybe she didn't hear me. And she then said, what are you doing? Why are you saying it like that? And why are you saying Aaron Burr? I said, you never saw that Got Milk commercial with Aaron Burr? She said, no. Sure enough, I showed it to her. And this is the most famous milk commercial, I think, of all time. This year marks the 30th anniversary. Can you believe that? I feel like it was yesterday I was watching this. The 30th anniversary of this particular Got Milk commercial. Now, let me paint the scene for you, paint the picture for you. A guy is sitting in what looks like a library, and the library is basically a monument to Aaron Burr. And the Alexander Hamilton duel. They have the bullet. They have portraits of uh, Burr shooting Hamilton. They have a Hamilton bust. They have a Burr bust. It's it's a a library that may as well be a research library all about the Burr shooting. And then the person that's making himself a nice peanut butter sandwich, which looks pretty delicious, watching this again, gets a phone call, and this is what transpires. And that was the Vienna Wood Dance in D, one of my all-time favorites. And now let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there. Hello? Hello, for $10,000, who shot... Excuse me? He's looking for the milk. Milk is out. I'm afraid your time is almost up. I'm sorry. Maybe next time. (laughs) Got milk. I feel so bad for that guy. You know, that commercial, I believe, was actually directed by Michael Bay. The uh, the director, famous director, went on to direct The Rock and uh, Pearl Harbor, a bunch of big action films. So now the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration officials, have issued guidance that says plant-based beverages don't pretend to be from dairy animals and that U.S. consumers aren't confused by the difference. Do you agree with that? I have to tell you, I think the FDA is right. The dairy industry is fighting this tooth and nail. I think people are smart enough to know That coconut milk, that almond milk, that soy milk doesn't actually have milk in it or milk uh, or milk of magnesia, for that matter. And I think they should be able to be called milk. But how far does that go? What can you call milk? What should be able to be called milk? Can you call everything milk? Right. Am I uh, am, am I able to market bottled water as rock milk? 
right? I mean, you think about it, it kind of comes from the ocean. It's near rocks. I, why not? What are the limits in calling something milk? 800-848-9222. For years, dairy producers have said they've called on the FDA to crack down on these plant-based drinks and other products that they say masquerade as animal-based foods. It's a similar debate to what's going on in the meat industry. They don't like uh, they don't like calling something meat that's not necessarily meat or a chicken, beef, whatever the case may be. So what is the real meaning and the real definition of milk? 800-848-9222. So under the draft rules, the FDA recommended that beverage makers label their products clearly by the plant source of the food, such as soy milk or cashew milk, but they can still include the word milk in the title. The rules also call for voluntary extra nutrition labels that note when the drinks have lower levels of nutrients than dairy milk, such as calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, etc. They would continue to allow labels that note when plant-based drinks have higher levels. Fortified soy milk is the only plant-based food included in the dairy category of the uh, U.S. dietary guidelines because of its nutrient levels. The new guidelines are aimed at providing consumers clear nutrition information. And uh, the FDA commissioner, Dr. Robert Califf, said in a statement, the draft rules do not apply to non-dairy products other than beverages, such as yogurt. So I'm sure the folks that are marketing something as yogurt, a soy yogurt or something along those lines that deviates from the conventional accepted definition of yogurt, I am sure we will hear from those folks in short order. The Good Food Institute, a group that advocates for plant-based products, objected to the extra labeling in a statement, saying the guidance misguidedly admonishes companies to make a direct comparison with cow's milk. I don't know. I mean, is extra labeling really that big of a deal? I think this is sort of a good middle ground. You can still use the word milk in your title. You have to say what your product actually comes from, and you have to include extra labels that include the dip. Well, actually, it's voluntary labels, but this group is opposed to even the voluntary labels. You have to include some voluntary labels saying this is the, these are the nutritional differences. I think the FDA, who is in, which is an agency that I've been very critical of over the years, I think the FDA actually got it right here. What do you think? You think the FDA is right? You think the food, um, the food, the Good Food Institute is right? Or do you think the dairy industry is right? It all comes down to the fundamental question, what is milk? Tell me. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jake is in New Jersey. What do you think of this guidance from the FDA, Jake? Hi. I think that milk has to come from a living mammal. Anything not coming from a living mammal can't be milk. And to the labeling problem, as much as you need on, on melatonin, you need to say that sleeping, taking one of these may cause drowsiness. You should need to say on almond juice that it's not milk. But what's the harm if they mandate that it has almond in the title? What is the harm in allowing the people that make almond milk? Sleeping pills have sleeping in the title, and you need to say that it causes drowsiness. Well, that's actually a pretty good point. But do you get the sense that a lot of consumers are are confused by almond milk, thinking it's actually something with cow's milk in it? 
No, this all comes from somewhere else. It comes from this gender scam, which I know you believe in, but it comes from this whole same scam. Jake, why did you identify as something and that's what you are? So why did your voice change all of a sudden? That was my friend. Oh, all right. Well, thank you, uh, Jake and friend. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. You know, I think actually Jake might be some sort of a schizophrenic. Or he might be Alex from Brooklyn. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show uh, for the next couple hours. This is an action-packed show. We never have four guests. I don't like to have four guests because I like to have some time to riff and to play sound and to talk and to kind of do a little stream of consciousness. Uh, But it's not every day that you get an opportunity to have four fascinating guests, and that is the case for the next four hours. In just a few minutes, I'm going to talk with uh, the great one, a.k.a. F. Lee Levin. Mark Levin is going to join me. I'm going to see if we can get his analysis on the 2024 uh, presidential race. And uh, we'll talk about a bunch of other things as well. Then in the second hour, we are going to talk with Dennis the Menace Kucinich. That's right. Former Democratic presidential candidate, former congressman from Ohio, former mayor of Cleveland. I have to say, I've been subscribing to his Substack. I think he's right on the money with respect to this Ukrainian situation. And did you read the New York Times article yesterday? The Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Oh, it wasn't blown up by the Russians. Who could have predicted that? Oh, that's right. Everybody except for the neocons that are marching us to war. He's going to join us in uh, hour two. Hour three, I am pumped by the fact that uh, Kelsey Grammer is going to join us for the AC report. He's going to be in Atlantic City this weekend, and uh, he's always really uh, kind enough to make some time for us. It was a thrill to meet him when he was in New York, and uh, I'm looking forward to having him on the radio. And then in our final hour, we'll have our normal Thursday sit-down with Brian Kilmeade. But first... I need you to tell me, what is milk? Should almond milk, soy milk, cashew milk, milk of magnesia, should they need to, should they have to take milk out of their title? The dairy industry wants them to. The FDA has sort of issued some middle ground guidance. What say you? 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Yeah, it's not milk. It's juice. Okay, but uh, now you'd have some juice. You'd have some people that say, I'm sure you'd have the juice industry saying, well, it really can't be juice unless it's something that comes from a fruit or a vegetable. I, I really don't want to talk about this. Your characterization of Teddy Roosevelt is completely wrong. He was not a flawed individual. Well, I mean, first of all, nobody's perfect, uh, Ed. And uh, look, yeah, you're not going to find a bigger Teddy Roosevelt fan than me, uh, but I appreciate the comment. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, I feel that the point you're making, that the public does know that it's not milk, that those other milks are not real milk. But I would complain if I was the milk company that it gives the impression that cashew milk or almond milk is as healthy and as great and pure, like a a baby can drink it. It, It's great. Just calling it milk makes, makes it, you know, takes away maybe from the milk industry. However, if these fake milks, so to speak, were able to bring up, say, positive things about their product, they might be able to say as healthy as milk. Well, to your point, to your point, the the guidance from the FDA basically says that they're going to have to specify in additional labeling what the difference is between their product nutritionally and milk. 
That's sort of what I'm saying in a way, right? But people know it's not real milk, but it still gives the impression that it's a great product. It's pure. All right. So um, I'm I'm a little unclear. What do you think of the Mm -hmm. FDA guidance on this? The FDA FDA guidance is good because it it differentiates that it's not real milk. It makes it very clear. Yeah, I think we're healthy as milk. Yeah, I think we're on the same page, Charles. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. This one, I'm, you, I, I think um, maybe it could be about what does milk do. It, it can do everything milk can do. I just tried almond milk for the first time, like last week, actually. It's funny. So does it have to be defined as coming from a living thing? Like FDA is, seems like they're favoring the established, you know, industry, you could say, and, and they, don't, they don't like it. It says, I mean, it says almond milk, oat milk. It's like there is a distinction right on the, right on the container. So Precisely. You know, I don't right. know. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like you're having a tough time uh, determining what oat milk is and what almond milk is not. <laughs> no, no, I just look at the container. <laughs> it's regulatory capture. I don't know. The FDA is kind of, I don't trust them these days. But yeah. uh, that's, that's all. <laughs> hey, Eric, thank you. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Uh, Marianne is in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Frank. Hi. Um, what is milk? I'm, I'm calling about an answer to that, it's uh, water, calcium, and a protein with sodium. Oh, so it doesn't, in your view, it doesn't need to come from an animal. Well, um, I drink this uh, product called muscle milk, and they they say it's milk, but th- that's the contents that I just read to you of the product. And also in pudding, you know, those little snack packs, it always says real milk, too. And I always wonder why they sell, they don't sell it refrigerated. Right. Well, so, Marianne, should almond milk be able to sell itself as almond milk? Or should, as the dairy industry wants, should they have to change the name? Um, I think almond milk is... Uh, shouldn't be with the milk because I think it's uh, fake milk. Okay. Well, they're all fake milk, right? That's the, that's the thing, right? That's exactly, and thanks for the call, Marion. That's exactly what the dairy industry is claiming. What the FDA is saying is as long as you say what it's from, coconut milk, almond milk, whatever, you can put that on the label and still sell it as soy milk because consumers aren't fooled. Uh, but if there are deviations between the nutritional value of your product Versus regular milk, yeah, you should throw up some additional labels to make it clear. I think this is a pretty good middle ground. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bill is in Manhattan. Hello, Bill. Yes. Hi there. Hi. I just wanted to point out that there is ample precedence already for milk, for a product being called milk when it, when it wasn't actually milk. Uh, early in the health food movement, there was a product, maybe still was around, I don't know, called Tiger's Milk. And I was, I, I myself was kind of wondering, what is tiger's milk? And then it even found its way as fodder for some comedians. Like, what is tiger's milk? Did you ever have, did you ever have to try to milk a tiger? You know, it's very funny. Yeah. How does it work? So I, so already the precedent is is long since broken. Yeah. Uh, so, but they've been fighting this for many years, the dairy industry, and it sounds like you think consumers are smart enough to know the difference. Sure, and Tiger's Milk is already grandfathered into into the product, so right. they're out of well, luck. Well, but the FDA can change the what they require for labeling on any product that wants any time. 
is that is that product still around though? Is it existing now? I don't even know. Uh, Tiger milk? I'm not sure. I can't say. We'll have to we'll have to research that. I can't say I have tried Tiger milk of late. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Pearl River. Hello, Robert. Yeah, hi Frank. Yeah, uh, you know it's like what, what the other guy says. He makes a good. What's the selling point? You know what I mean? Milk is natural and makes it look. Oh, this is natural. The only thing, if you're kosher, you know, Jewish people, they're not supposed to mix meat and milk within a certain time slot. And they read it and they're like, you say, well, wait a minute, that's I can't have that. Well, maybe they could have had it, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> so it wasn't really milk in the first place. Do you, you think know? soy milk is confusing observant Jews about what they can eat it with? If it doesn't have, you know, with Jewish people are religious, that uh, if it doesn't have milk in it, uh, you know, then that could confuse them. You know what I mean? If it really didn't have milk, then maybe they could have had something that was uh, nutritious. But uh, with the time slot, you know, they're not supposed to mix meat and milk together. So it should be, I think the FDA should, you know, differentiate like the other person says and say, okay, this is real milk and this isn't milk, you know, but it is a selling point. You know, I see it all over the place. Milk is in this, milk is in that, and when it's not really that nutritious the way they say it's going to be. All right. So, well, uh, thank you, Robert. Well, we'll give Gracie in Rockland the last word here before we get to Mark Levin. Hello, Gracie. Hi, listen, it should be called almond drink, oat drink, because it's really not milk. And if uh, the companies that produce it uh, really think it's so good, why don't they want the extra labeling? Because they want to con the public. And I think if you went out, the man on the street or the lady on the street, a lot of people wouldn't even know it's not really milk, that it's from a plant. Because we're not a bunch of smart people anymore. Well, what about milk of magnesia, for instance? That's helped a lot of people with digestion over the years. Should milk of magnesia be prohibited from using the word milk in its title? Uh, I don't even think anybody really even thought back then that it was really milk. It just looked like milk. Right. Well, that's the same thing with soy milk, almond milk, oat milk, right? I mean, that's the only thing it has in common with milk is that it just looks like it. Yeah, but I think uh, more people are taking, quote, the oat milk, the almond milk. You're not supposed to give a baby skin milk. So now some of these dummy mothers might end up giving the kid oat milk because they think it's good. Yeah, and thank you, Gracie. I, I that's I guess that's the fundamental difference between the two of us. I don't think consumers are being fooled into uh, serving soy milk because they think there's milk in it. I don't. I, I think any person, any mother, uh, will know that there's no milk, no dairy milk in soy milk, and it's going to have to include soy around the label. So, uh, if you want to hold on, we'll happy to. We're, I'm happy to take your call on this a little bit later. But as far as I'm concerned, I think the FDA made the right decision here. All right. We're going to talk with uh, Mark Levin. Find out if he's a big milk drinker. We'll talk with Mark Levin in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, this is a real treat. It's not every day that you get to talk with a best-selling author. It's not every day that you get to talk with one of the foremost conservative legal scholars in the country. It's not every day that you get to talk with an alumnus of the Reagan administration. And it's not every day that you get to talk with one of the most listened-to, nationally syndicated talk show hosts in the country. And not to mention, one of the most watched hosts on the weekend on cable news, but it's a rare day indeed where all those folks are the same person. Gives me a great deal of pleasure. The man that uh, some of you call Dr. Levin, the man that uh, Rush Limbaugh called F. Lee Levin, and the man that just about everybody calls the great one. Uh, Let me welcome Mark Levin. Mark, it's a real treat to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Wow, Frank, I have to come more often with an introduction like that, but thank you. You're very, very gracious. Appreciate it, man. Uh, Mark, I've been uh, listening to you for two decades since you started on Sundays on WABC. I think probably even before that when you were just filling in. And it was clear that you were destined for greatness in radio. But what I think many of us maybe didn't anticipate, knowing how entertaining you are, knowing how smart you are, we didn't necessarily anticipate you would become one of the go-to intellectual leaders Leaders of the conservative movement in print, on TV and radio and digital. A lot of folks are looking to your guidance on a regular basis with respect to 2024. There seems to be two schools of, of, of thought among the conservative camp. One is that Republicans should defer to Trump and allow him to be the nominee unfettered. And the other is that maybe the Republican Party would be better with someone other than Trump. I know you did a great interview with DeSantis last week. What's your view on how the 2024 race plays out. What do you think is best for the Republican Party and best for the country? And I'll let you in on a secret. In the audience, I'll be doing a great interview, not because of me, the guest, but President Trump in a few weeks, too. Oh. Um, That is a very intelligent way of trying to figure out who I support. (laughs) Frank, you've gotten very good at this. Uh, Tell everybody, you used to be a producer, you used a few times you were my call screener. You've made it big time, buddy. And well, you're very, very good. And well, I really appreciate it. I appreciate that. One of the early compliments that I got uh, when I filled in for you is uh, at the end of the show, I think it was only a two-hour show at the time, you said, Frank, you yeah. did a good job keeping up with us tonight in terms of getting the calls on hold. <laughs> That's not an easy thing. So I appreciate that. But but honestly. Well, I, I'll answer it. I, yeah. I will tell you this. Uh, I think we benefit from either one of these men, frankly. I'm not one of those that says we can't win without Trump, and I'm not one of those that's going to trash DeSantis. I like both of these men very much. Uh, They are very different men in many respects. At some point, I'll make some kind of a decision, but I do not want to really start um, getting into this this, uh, who do I support, who am I going to support game yet, because I have responsibilities both on TV and radio and so forth, and I I want people to continue to listen to the arguments, continue to see how things go. We have a long way to go. And uh, the bottom line is we have to defeat the enemy. And in the end, that will be my my uh, my conclusion. Who will help us defeat the enemy and uh, and take this country back? Because the Democrats are killing us. So that's where I come from. I'm friends with both of these men. I think highly of both of these men. Uh, I think that it should be one or the other, as opposed to all the others who will be lining up and and feel that they should be president. 
Um, and um, and I spend time and talk to both of these men to answer your question as best I can. The uh, there was a lot of reporting that uh, that maybe Fox News had instituted some sort of a soft ban on Donald Trump. I know he was on with uh, Sean Hannity this week, but the fact that you're having him on in a couple of weeks, I guess that goes to show that the reporting on that uh, soft Trump ban was inaccurate. I can only speak for myself. Nobody's banned anybody for me or from me or told me I can't do anything. Uh, so in terms of that. Uh, I can I can say definitively, uh, at least with respect to me and my show, there is no ban, period. A lot of the folks that were responsible for the Republicans winning uh, the Congress in 2010, a lot of people credit the energy of the Tea Party movement. 2016 with Donald Trump, who was written off as having no chance of winning, a lot of folks credit the energy of the MAGA movement, the Make America Great Again movement. As far as you're concerned, in 2024, do you think the key to winning in the general election is energizing sort of the center-right populists in the country, the kind of Buchanan-style pitchfork populists, or is it trying to win over Democrats and independents? How do you see a general election strategy for the Republicans? I think they should uh, take a look at the Reagan election. And Reagan wasn't dividing conservatives and the Republicans and the nation one way or another. We had a country that was on its back under Carter, uh, economically, militarily, uh, in so many ways. And Reagan laid out an agenda, and we failed in the midterms to lay out an agenda, mostly due to Mitch McConnell, because he's a disaster. I think everybody can agree on that, and he's very unpopular. Uh, And he uh, undermines conservatives left and and right and contributes to these Democrat legislative victories, uh, bad legislative victories when it comes to so much of the spending. So I think we have to throw off that kind of republicanism, the Bush – Gerald Ford, Rockefeller, uh, Rhino Republicanism, Mitch McConnell Republicanism, and conservatives need to unite, whether conservatives are fiscal conservatives or social conservatives or or defense hawks or whatever they are. uh, We're not big enough to split ourselves into little pieces. So whether we call ourselves MAGA or Tea Party or Reagan Revolution or all those things, as I do, uh, there are certain fundamentals that I hope a Republican candidate will run on, whether it's the size of government, whether it's securing the border, whether it's uh, the private sector, uh, national security, and you can go down the list of five or six and run on those five or six things. And those should appeal, I would think, uh, to the largest majority of Americans and also be prepared to push back on the radical agenda of the left. And have some arguments, some bullet points in your mind and repeat them wherever you go to uh, to confront them. I mean, it's not like Joe Biden is a genius when it comes to marketing himself or his propaganda. He's he's vile and he's vicious and he lies. And uh, people who run for president should be able to uh, to deal with that.
And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Mark Levin. In addition to being a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, one of the most listened to in the country, he's a best-selling author. His latest book is American Marxism. If you haven't gotten a copy yet, you can actually order it right at MarkLevinShow.com. That's MarkLevinShow.com. You'll appreciate it, Mark, that uh, my son's uh, babysitter says that your book, uh, several of your books, actually stand right next to the Bible on her bookshelf. That's oh, wow. among her. Most uh, valued possession. <laughs> well, according well, to you know, the, the book, people talk about Frank as liberty and tyranny yeah. most of the time. Yeah, which was the, it came out about the same time the Tea Party was rising. Uh, not, not you know, on purpose. It was coincidence. And uh, we had a hell of a good election year that midterm. I mean, we we took sixty six House seats. We would have taken more Senate seats, but for McConnell and so many of his. Uh, Rhino candidates, and again, his refusal to back conservatives. Um, and we took God knows how many seats in the legislatures and governorships. It was a massive landslide. And we did the same in the Reagan Revolution. And in the MAGA Revolution, we won the presidency. That was a big deal against all odds. So, uh, I mean, to, to play the Washington establishment game is to lose. Mm. And, and not only to lose politically, we have a battle on our hands. And we need to elect people who understand what kind of battle we're facing. It is a culture war. It's in our classrooms. It's in our media. It's in our academia. It is everywhere. It's in the HR departments for major corporations. Uh, they're changing our language. They're, they're raising questions about binary sex. I mean, it's the most absurd thing, and yet it's out there. And if we have people running who don't comprehend it, like a Chris Sununu or a Chris Christie or people like that, who are not prepared to engage, but instead stab our guys in the back who are engaging, I reject them. Trump understands it. DeSantis understands it. Uh, they've both done things about it to fight it, and I don't know that there are many more who do or can. Speaking of Trump, on the on domestic policy, obviously foreign policy is another matter, but uh, on domestic policy, there seems to be very little difference between Trump and the other candidates that are talking about running, uh, whether it's DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Pompeo, Pence. One of the few areas in domestic policy where it does seem there's a significant difference is Social Security and Medicare, the so-called entitlements. Donald Trump, every chance he gets in every speech and every social media post, in every interview, he says Republicans should absolutely not touch Social Security and not touch Medicare, and it's a recipe for losing elections. A lot of the other Republicans, uh, both in the Senate and those talking about running for president, seem to disagree. Where do you come down on the issue of how to handle the future of Social Security and Medicare? Is Trump right? Now, wait a minute. Two questions I think you're asking. What do I think needs to be done, or what do I think politically well, is the smartest Well, I'll, I'll ask both. I'll ask both. What, what needs to be done, and what's the politically expedient thing to do? Well, what needs to be done is if they're not changed, they're going to they're gonna collapse. And let me tell you what I mean. The trustees of both programs, the trustee of Medicare says by 2028, there won't be enough funds left. Now, what are we going to do? We're going to let it collapse? That means nobody's going to get care. But what it really means is automatically there's going to be a massive payroll tax increase and there's going to be a slash in benefits. So if you do nothing, that doesn't mean nothing's going to happen. The law of economics, they don't care about it. The laws of economics are not affected by politics. They are what they are. And what they are is if you keep spending money, you don't take enough in, 
a system will collapse. And by the way, they drained all the money out of the trust fund anyway. So we're really talking about IOUs. And then the trustees say that in 10 years, Social Security won't have funds. So what do we do about that? We just keep saying we're not going to touch it, not going to touch it. Well, we have to touch it. And there are ways to do it. But the longer we wait, the harder it is. And the way you do it is to increase the eligibility age. You grandfather in the people who are on Social Security. You grandfather the people in who are, say, 10 years away from Social Security. And then everybody else has to understand that we're raising the age because the age 65 comes from Bismarck in the mid-1800s in Germany <laughs> when they had the first Social Security program. Okay, well, we got to deal with that. They've expanded Social Security. They've included more people on Social Security. They've included young people, depending on if they have parents on Social Security. The problem with the federal government, it's not supply and demand. It's only demand. The private sector is supply and demand. The federal government's all demand. It's all one way. So Social Security will be addressed one way or another, as will Medicare will be addressed one way or another. The prediction is if Social Security isn't addressed, um, the payroll tax will jump from 12 point whatever percent it is on the employer and employee side to 25 percent automatically. And the and the benefits will be reduced. So we don't want that, do we? And on, on the Medicare side, I already mentioned what would happen. Mm -hmm. So the problem is Joe Biden has already politicized this thing. He says people want to take Social Security and Medicare away from you. And it's an amazing thing. The Democrats took almost $800 billion out of Medicare to fund Obamacare. And they've taken almost $300 billion out of Medicare, even in this last cycle, in this massive monstrosity they voted for, again, to move funds to, uh, uh, to uh, Obamacare. So they keep draining Medicare. And Social Security is just sort of slowly slowly, slowly heading south. So that's number one. As a, as a realistic matter, these programs need to be addressed. Uh, we don't have as many young people as we did contributing before. We have more and more seniors. Uh, take Medicare. Medical expenses are getting higher and higher. Uh, as for whether you should run on it, I don't think you should run on it. I mean, I think if you become president, you need to do something about it. And I think what I would be saying is, look, it's not my goal to cut benefits to current Social Security and Medicare recipients or to cut it for uh, future recipients who will soon be eligible for it. But we do need to take a look at it and figure out how to save these programs. That's what I would say. It, and it would be demagogued nonetheless, but you've got to defend yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the primaries. Uh, Mark, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I hope you'll come back because uh, I have a ton of questions for you about uh, the documents case and a lot of what's happening legally and in the courts. But I have to ask you uh, selfishly yeah. because uh, I see the incredible kind of uh, radio career that you, you've built, even though you came from sort of traditionally a non-radio background, uh, working as a, an attorney, head of Landmark Legal, working in the Reagan administration, doing a lot of other things. Making the transition from politics, government, and the law to radio, you make it look easy. You make your show sound effortless. Now, I know it it's not effortless because I know what it takes to do a three- or four-hour show every day. But did the fact that you were such a big radio listener to people like Bob Grant and Rush Limbaugh and others, did that make that transition easier, or did you have others, some sort of other secret sauce to sounding so natural on the radio? Well, that certainly helped. I was a fan of some of these greats, and I would listen to them. I'd fall asleep with them with my transistor radio on. 
even Larry King, I would listen to him, didn't much like him, his interview style and so forth. And uh, the great Rush Limbaugh, of course, and he told me the key to being a great radio host is being yourself, not to be anybody else. The audience will know it. But here's the little dirty secret. When I was 16 years old, I wrote and harassed the program director at WCAU in Philadelphia, now WPHT. Mm. And I wanted to do a, a teenager talk show because I would listen to the talk show host there. And, um, well, of course, he wouldn't let me do that, but he let me do an hour, and I was hooked. So even though I went in a different direction, law and all the rest of it, it was always in the back of my mind. And yet it's really um, uh, luck that I got into it because I would send Rush information on the Constitution, the law, and that's where Ethel Levin comes from, director of the legal division. There was no legal division, of course. <laughs> And Hannity, uh, from time to time, would ask me to come in, and then, and then the program director at WABC at the time, Phil Boyce, asked if I would want to fill in when Hannity was out. Rush asked if he, one thing led to another, and so my advice to people is this: in order to get somewhere, you got to be somewhere. If you just want to do something, that's not good enough. Look at your own career: you were a producer, you were answering call from, and now you're a radio host. Look at uh, Rich Valdez, who's also my friend. Absolutely. He was a, he was a, a phone answer. Uh, ben Shapiro was going to make it no matter what, but he was a sub, as was Dan Bonfino. These are great hosts. These are great people, as are you, as are others. And so the trick is, whether it's radio or something else, make sure you're there, wherever there is, wherever that business is. And I can tell you, when I did the Sunday show you talked about, uh, I did two hours. It didn't even show up on the ratings, and all of a sudden it was showing up. I did it for 14 months. You know how much I got paid for that time? I, I have a pretty good idea. I worked for Phil Boyce and knew what he paid back then. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Zero. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try it out. I'm going to give it a shot. And it was because the manager there didn't have any money. And I said, all right, let's do it. This is like on-the-job learning for the biggest radio station in America. And that's what I did. And, and they, they needed somebody for an hour during the week. I said, all right, I can do an hour, and then one thing led to another. Uh, Mark, uh, it's such a treat to talk with you. Can you give us a preview of what's coming up on uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin this Sunday evening? Yeah, among other things, um, we have a gentleman who was a reporter for Fox. And uh, Ben went to the Ukraine, and, of course, uh, he came back. He almost died there. He lost a leg. He lost the movement in one hand. It's paralyzed. He lost the sight in one eye. Almost lost his life. And he has a new book coming out. And I'm really not into the book, book, book stuff, but I use the opportunity for a new book if I really like the author, if there's something interesting, to dig deeply into to certain events. And I want to understand exactly what happened to him because um, it was horrific. We've heard about I didn't even know of his injuries until I started reading his book and uh, what was taking place over there. So I think that'll be very, very interesting. That's for sure. Mark, uh, in addition it, to my opening statement, of course. Well, that uh, that stops traffic. People make sure uh, they're, <laughs> they're listening to that. And we have it on here at the radio station, obviously. every Everybody stops and looks up whenever uh, whenever the show begins to hear the, uh, the, opening, uh, the opening salvo. Mark, it's always a treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Thank you. 
God bless, Frank. Take care of yourself, brother. Thank you. The great Mark Levin. If you want to check out uh, the book American Marxism, you can go to marklevinshow.com, marklevinshow.com. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So last night I uh, went to a, I had agreed to speak at a fundraiser for a friend of mine who's running for a city council in New York. A great guy, uh, Michael Ragusa. He's been on a, a guest on a bunch of different talk shows, including Sit and Friends in the Morning on WABC. He's running very much on a, a tough on crime Platform. I'm friendly with the Democratic incumbent for, uh, as well, but uh, Michael has got a Republican primary to uh, to win, and uh, he's the only one that invited me to speak at his fundraiser. So I'll go anywhere. My general rule of thumb is that I'll go anywhere that I'm invited to speak, especially for a uh, a friend. Now, I ha- was under the impression that this event started at. Uh, at uh, 6 p.m. And I get there at 6 p.m., and which I hate to do because I really hate to leave my son early. And, and my son goes to bed around 7.30, and usually I'm the one that puts him to bed. I'm the one that brushes his teeth. And I really enjoy that time with him. So I hate to leave at 5 o'clock rather than at, you know, 7.30 or 8 o'clock. But anyway, so I get there, and... Sure enough, it, they I go. It's in a restaurant and bar in Brooklyn, and they point me to the the back. I say, "Yeah, it's back there," and they say, "But you're welcome to go back there, but nobody's back there." Now it's at six. It's at six p.m. The time that I believe this event starts, and I go back there, and it's empty. I said, "Oh my, do I have the wrong day?" The wrong time, the wrong place, and this is after I circled for blocks looking for a parking space. So sure enough, I look at the invitation, which I guess I should have looked more closely at when I first got it. But the event started at 7. So I was there an hour before the event began. I I just, and I'm just hitting myself because my wife is sending me all these great Carmine videos of stuff that he's doing that's really fun that I'm missing. And I'm sitting now, not even helping anybody. I'm sitting in a room by myself. And uh, I said, all right, let me make the most of it. Let me walk back to my car. Let me get my computer. And let me try and at least get a little bit of work done so that uh, I'm not so far behind when I leave the fundraiser and I go to the radio station and begin preparing for the show. And so I do that. I go to the car. I get my computer. I walk back. And it's freezing cold, by the way. And uh, I walk back, and I get the Wi-Fi password from the bartender. I go back there. I said, okay, this is nice. 
I, I have about 45 minutes of solitude to get work done and to prepare for the show and to just think. And sure enough, I'm going along for 15, 20 minutes, and then other people start arriving at like 6.35 or so. Now, because I'm the only person in the room, they all kind of congregate around me. And I'm trying not to be rude because obviously I don't want to be rude to anybody, but they're talking to me and they're making conversation and they're discussing the race, they're discussing politics. And I'm trying to, initially I, I was trying to make clear, you know, I'm trying to get some work done here. But I figured I'm there, and I put my computer away. So uh, around 6.40, I was in full-fledged, you know, attending the uh, the fundraiser mode. And it was a great event. A lot of great people came, and uh, it was, uh, you know, a lot of great people focused on the crime issue, which is very big in New York, as it is in many areas around the country. Certainly my, uh, my friend John Tobacco was there. And if you want to learn more about Mike's campaign, you can go to uh, Ragu, like the sauce, Ragu4NYC.com. Uh, so I appreciated being asked, but I just wished I had looked close, more closely at the invitation initially. And uh, let that be a lesson to you. Don't assume you know the start times of things. Uh, and uh, always double-check. Always double-check the start times. All right. Uh, you want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk with Dennis the Menace Kucinich, former congressman of Ohio. But let me try and squeeze in as many of your calls as we can here. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Dave is in upstate New York. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, milkweed. Sure, be my guest. Yeah, milkweed is like those fairies you used to blow and they had seeds in them. And when the leaves are cut or the stems are cut, it has a milky subject. So Now, when you say those fairies, what do you mean fairies? Are you talking about gay they look people? look like starbursts, you know, they, they, they fly around once the seeds get mature. I and see. the wind blows them. Well, I don't know that the FDA has any any domain over plants and what plants are titled. Yeah, that's true. So, but, what's your but point? The exactly? color is a milky subject. I asked Alexa about it. Uh, it's a substance, I mean, and so I think color has to do with it. If almond milk is white, it's called milk. Okay, so uh, I, I, I I'm a little lost, David. Do you agree with the FDA's decision? Do you disagree with it? What do you think? I I think. It's a milk. It's because of the color of it. Okay. Well, I'll go along with that. It makes sense to me. Thank you. 800-848-9222. There you go. You, this is the only show in the world where in between a conversation with Mark Levin and Dennis Kucinich, you can hear about milkweed. This is the only show. I, I'm very proud, maybe not so proud, to uh, say that we have that distinction. Leo is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Leo. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I believe uh, it should be called just uh, soya drink or milk-like uh, almond drink because any dictionary you take a look, milk is actually a fluid produced by mammals to feed the newborns. It has nothing to do with soya or with almonds. And it's just the uh, base of every nation the bottom 10% of people with low IQ are the ones, statistically, who have the most kids. That's statistics. 
And these people, believe me, these people all the way down, where is the 60, 70 IQ, they don't see the difference, which you say automatically every mother knows that uh, soya milk is not uh, milk from the cow. These people, they don't know the difference. They don't look in the back if there's a calcium or not. They just see sign milk and they feed it to the kids. All right. Well, thank you, Leo. I appreciate that. 800-848-9222 if you would like to weigh in. Uh, next hour is the birthday of a broadcasting legend. We're going to tell you who, and then we'll talk with Dennis Kucinich about what's happening with respect to this war in Ukraine. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. In the meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Today would be the 97th anniversary of the great Joe Franklin. Uh, do you know who Joe Franklin is? If you do, you're lucky. If you don't, well, you might be even luckier because in the next 10 minutes, I am going to give you an education that every American television viewer and broadcaster should have. Joe Franklin was a New York City institution. Joe Franklin, who um, was born March 9th, 1926, in the Bronx, was on television every day from 1951 on Channel 7, WABC-TV, back when it was called WJZ. And then he moved to WOR Channel 9 in 1962, remaining there until 1993. So from 1951... To 1993, this man was on television in New York, and then once Channel 9 became a superstation, it was around the country as well, every single day, every single weekday. Imagine that. That is a record which I don't think will ever be broken. On television every weekday for 42 straight years. He was also incredibly accomplished in the world of radio broadcasting. He was also an incredibly prolific author, and he was—he briefly lent his name to a restaurant and would spend a lot of time there. He was an incredible person, and uh, he died, unfortunately, in 2015, and uh, I miss him very much. He was an incredibly close friend of mine and a mentor, and on his birthday, I always try to spend a few minutes remembering him. And he was someone that really influenced my style as a television talk show host and then a little bit later as a radio talk show host. And he's somebody that I really miss, not just because I miss him as a friend, but I miss him for what he meant to the world of broadcasting. Now, there's so many things that you can say about Joe. But I will say that one of the things that has to be mentioned about Joe is his incredible longevity. Because to as the tastes of the public change 
as radio stations flip formats, as TV stations flip formats, to be able to stay on the air and make a living for decades, because his broadcasting career did not end in 1993. That's when his TV show ended, Up Late with Joe Franklin or Joe Franklin's Memory Lane. He continued on radio for decades. On Bloomberg Radio, by the way, people probably listen to him on Bloomberg Radio all around the country and on WOR Radio. And, I mean, if you look back at the track record that he had going back to the 1950s, it's extraordinary. And for the most part, he largely sounded the same. Here's Joe Franklin in 1957. So Hayakawa is that this man is a legend. We can read in any book that he was the highest priced star for many, many years. I mean, we're not denying this. It's a fact, right? But I haven't seen too many of the pictures. Yeah. Did you usually uh, co-star with American leading ladies? Yeah, I used to. Were you many years? Were you a menace or a villain or a, a oh, both? Both. Menace, villain, and hero sometimes. Did you sometimes <laughs> get the girl? No, very scarcely. <laughs> very scarcely got the girl. <laughs> yeah. There were two things we were sure of in the silent movies: then that the Indians never got the best of it, and Cecil Hayakawa <laughs> never got the girl. Right. By the way, uh, Joe Franklin is not a man that I believe ever used a teleprompter. Almost everything that he said was off the cuff. Every hour of his TV show, every hour of his radio shows, uh, most I think maybe his short-form radio commentaries, because he was limited to five minutes um, in one set of commentaries and then one minute in another, that was probably written. But all, all that you would see on television was totally organic. Here's Joe Franklin in 1968. My friends, as we promised you, a show within a show a spectacular presentation the group you're about to hear they're kind of personal protégés of mine and of many of the discotheques here in new york city this group called the druids of stonehenge have recently completed or recorded their first long playing record it's a big hit album the album itself is called creation and indeed they have created personally most of the songs in that album and they're hot and young and vital and dynamic and very very current the Druids of Stonehenge and their first number, live and lively and in person, and it's called Mumsy. Okay, Mumsy. One of the many things that I've t- taken from Joe Franklin, as you may already be able to tell, is his talent for introductions. I uh, I don't write down my introductions of people. You know, Mark Levin remarked about the kind introduction that uh, that I gave him. I got that from Joe. I thought it was such a nice way to start an interview. And if you do end up asking tougher questions, then people don't feel so bad because you gave them such a kind introduction to begin with. And Joe would give that sort of introduction to anybody. If he was interviewing a singing dentist or Babe Ruth's daughter – they would all get that that great Joe Franklin introduction. It was the kind of show where you could see any people, anything could happen. You just never knew what it could happen. Now, in New York, those of us that grew up in that era, anybody that was ever up late, Joe Franklin was the only thing to watch. There was no cable. There was no, there was no anything. There was just Joe Franklin and a test pattern. So the old joke was Billy Crystal, who impersonated Joe on Saturday Night Live, made this joke that no one ever saw the end of a Joe Franklin show because you would watch it as you were trying to fall asleep. And I really liked it. Here's Joe in 1977. I just bumped into a couple of good friends over there. I want to take an on-the-air opportunity today to thank some of these people for their friendship and their help. I've got John Christie, who sings at the uh, 
London Lee Nightclub. I've got uh, Bert Padell, who writes poetry, who wants to do a poem today for Virginia Mayo. I've got uh, Joe Weiss, who writes those articles about me in Celebrity Magazine. The one here about uh, Barbara Streisand, who began on this program, and the one about Liza Minnelli, which will be in the forthcoming issue, who began on this program at the request of a young lady named Judy Garland. I've got a very exciting lady who has written The Gift of Chaos. He talked about chaos. I think this is where chaos begins on this program, but it usually uh, works itself out. I guess, I guess, Ms. Mayo, even a movie could be a chaotic situation, but somehow at the end, the movie gets made, right? Right. 1986. Well, the big news is that Morris Katz is back in town, and in this era of instant speed, and I don't mean that kind of speed, I mean instant action and motion. There's a reason why the world's fastest painter is very hot on our show. And the hot news is that uh, the female Ali, uh, Jackie Tanawanda, is going to soon be announcing on this program. Today, in fact, her nightclub debut. And since she's the women's heavyweight champion uh, of the world, uh, or light heavyweight, I, I, I dare any critic, Arthur, not to give her a rave review. I, right? He's <laughs> yeah, talking early on there about Morris Katz, who was a friend of mine as well, who also passed away. He was the world's fastest, fastest painter. We have one of his paintings in Carmine's room. Here he is in 1993. Let me say good morning. Let me say you're watching history's longest-running talk show, this one. And every time that we go on the air, we set a new record. And uh, I guess we've got a record for having certain guests that... Come back over and over again. Where do you start? Captain Lou Albano, uh, Bob Hope, Billy Crystal, Sally Kirkland, Milton Berle, and a uh, lady that uh, drops down here whenever she's got a new video to show. Her name was Phoebe Legere. Phoebe's one of my favorite, uh, what you call, sultry type or dynamic type or outrageous type guests. Now, I first got to know Joe, I guess, around 1999, 2000, when I started my cable access TV show. He was kind enough to give me his desk. I used Joe's desk, and it was really terrific. Here was Joe in 2004. We've got a friend of ours, uh, Eddie, who's putting on a modern day or 18... uh, Albert, are you with me, Albert? uh, How are you doing? Albert, last name once again, Albert? Albert Garzone. And the uh, burlesque show you're putting on is... is, It's called the Ixion Burlesque Show. And it it duplicates the burlesque uh, show of what period? From the 1860s. 1860s. Yeah, in the 1860s, there was a trend in burlesque to incorporate Greek mythology. And here's Joe in 2013. I mean, think of the breadth of broadcasting from 1957 to 2013. I got to tell you, last night I was hosting, you know, I do a lot of... uh, Special events, speaking engagements. I was at a uh, nursing home, and I saw a man in the front row sleeping. So I said to his wife, I says, what's this all about? She says, my husband is sleeping. I said, well, do me a favor, wake him up. She says, no, you put him asleep, you wake him up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, in his mid-80s, he still had the sharpest wit of anybody that I ever knew. There, here's how a typical Joe Franklin show would open. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody, a very cordial welcome to our Joe Franklin TV show every day for 90 minutes. We have open house. We chit-chat. We try and keep it informal and relaxed, and uh, it's fun. It's fun. And it was fun. It absolutely was. Now, if you never heard Joe on radio, if you never watched him on television, I am betting you've seen Joe and heard Joe before. There was a little film about 40 years ago called Ghostbusters. Now, Joe Franklin, even though he was not an actor, he appeared in many movies, almost always as himself. He's in a bunch of Woody Allen films like uh, Manhattan, Broadway, Danny Rose, a bunch of others. 
And he's in Ghostbusters. He has the most memorable line in the film Ghostbusters. Think about it. What is the most memorable line in Ghostbusters? Think about it. What is it? Without a doubt, it's this one. Sigourney Weaver is up late at night. She's making herself a sandwich or something, and she would do what every New Yorker would do when she when they were up late at night. She's watching Joe Franklin. As they say in TV, I'm sure there's one big question on everybody's mind, and I imagine you are the man to answer that. How is Elvis, and have you seen him lately? <laughs> totally ad-libbed as he did that scene with Dan Aykroyd. It was another great film with Danny Aiello playing himself, and this was true to life because the film 29th Street was about the first New York State lottery, and in real life, Joe Franklin was the person that announced the winner. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Memory Lane himself, Joe Franklin. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. The big moment has arrived at long last, the very first New York State lottery. The Empire Stakes with some lucky uh, person receiving $6,200,000 the very first in New York State. I know the excitement has been uh, mounting and generating and mushrooming and snowballing and escalating and skyrocketing. And the uh, contestants out there, the uh, audience, you're kind of uh, palpitating and uh, drooling and salivating and getting ready now for the moment. The moment has arrived. And the lucky, lucky person is... Mr. Frank Pesh. He was great. Oh, totally improvised. Now, I've had the good fortune of interviewing Joe Franklin many times over the years. Whenever I was starting on a new station or in a new time slot, he was always one of my he was always my first guest or on my first show, and he was always very kind to be able to come through. Uh, here's one of many discussions that Joe and I had on the air over the years. The great Joe Franklin. Joe, good morning to you. Thank you so much for coming on the radio with me. Oh, what a pleasure, Frank. I should be in an institution, right? I should be institutionalized. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, they say your office has rubber walls. Maybe that's the reason. Oh boy! Well, listen. It's uh, I, I know the order of my disorder. I can I can you say where's Valentino's Rudolph Valentino's coffee mug from nineteen twenty six? I'll put my finger on them. Uh, I heard that the that the great Albert Einstein had an office similar to mine in, in being messy and unruly. So I guess I guess he's in good company if he's with me, right? Joe, let me let me paint the picture for folks that haven't actually literally seen the picture of your right. office. Your office is is very large. It's a spacious space, but it only has room for about three people because there's so much, yeah, some would say clutter. I know you would call it nostalgia, but from, from floor to ceiling, there's books, there's records, there's cassettes, there's photographs, there's VHS tapes, there's DVDs, there's posters. Anything you can possibly imagine is in that office. It's like a museum of nostalgia. How did you get this way? Are you a candidate for that TV show, Hoarders? Well, first of all, you mentioned the uh, room for three people. I want to add that those three people must be very short. They got to be short people. <laughs> yeah. Not that much space. But I'm. Uh, it's, a, it's a thing that I've been offered all kind of money. I mean, seriously, to sell some of this stuff on eBay and probably based on what you hear about uh, Bob Dylan getting a million dollars for his guitar or something. I could probably get enormous 
money. I mean, beyond the calculation, but I don't want to sell because I'm, I'm so emotionally attached to this stuff. It would break my heart to, to part with it. So if you're listening around the country and you think, okay, here's a guy that was very much a one of New York's favorite sons and very well known in New York. Why should we care? He was, and this is documented, the father of the modern TV talk show. A staple in this city for literally decades. Any New Yorker that ever had insomnia, uh, which is just about any New Yorker, this was before really everybody had cable, um, you know, this show was ubiquitous. You were an institution, and just even you, you might know, uh, not to break in, Frank, I, I invented the talk show, the oh. big special put out by A&E, by Hearst, by Hearst called It's Only Talk, and they, they reminisce with me when I, Martin, remember the name Martin Block in the Make Believe Ballroom? Absolutely, you were a platter spinner with uh, with, with Martin Block. on platter spinner, record taker, got my, my own radio show on WNEW, the late, uh, late WNEW, and one day I get a phone call from Channel 7, they're considering lighting up in the daytime, there was no daytime TV, no, uh, so they said, if we give you an hour that we like your voice, if we give you an hour that what kind of show might you do? I said, well, I do a show of people talking, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball. They said, Joey, right do you mind? You can't do a talk show on television. you got to give them sell the bottle, pratfalls, baggy pants, burlesquets, so, and rock and roll was starting to come. I said, well, I do a show of kids dancing to records. I said, Joey, you're not just going to watch kids dance to records. So, you know, Dick Clark comes along becomes a billionaire. <laughs> I defied them, Frank, and I did the first pure organic from the bones TV talk show. I could just talk about Joe Franklin and play Joe Franklin clips all day, but I won't because we have Dennis Kucinich waiting in the wings. However, I'll just end with this. So often I asked Joe what his favorite interview was. And the fact of the matter is most of the people on Joe's show were unknowns. Even the ones that became super famous, they were unknown at the time that they were on with Joe. And most of them forgot about Joe when they became famous. One who didn't, by the way, was Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby always came back no matter how big he was, no matter how famous he got and was always appreciative of Joe's early advocacy for his career. But one big star that Joe did have on repeatedly and who he did befriend and he really looked up to and he said he just melted when he had him on was Bing Crosby. Here's a little bit of Joe Franklin and Bing Crosby. That was a sad story. My guest, ladies and gentlemen, is the man who has sold more records than anybody else. More hit movie. Now, so that may be a fiction about the records, Joe. You can't. You think the, you Beatles, know, you think know, the, the Beatles came close? I think they must sell more. Yeah. When you think of these days, uh, there's so many more record buyers. So many more people have playback machines and all those stereo sets. In those days, gee, if you got a record to sell a hundred thousand, you were having a big sale mm-hmm. way back there, you know. So I don't see how that could be true. But the, the figures are put out by the. The record companies. I'll have to check that over and see if I got paid on all those royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to believe it. It sold 400 million records. I didn't get that much money, Joe. Being the, uh, but I'm glad to get anything, you know. You did fair. You did fair. The, the fellows who impersonated you in vaudeville, including Sid Gary, and, and when they would do that boo 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 boo, I used to wonder did you ever really, like they say, like Cary Grant never said uh, Judy, 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 yeah. and Betty Davis never said this, and Humphrey Bogart oh, never no. said. All right, Louis, drop the gun. People have asked me, because I'm supposed to be somewhat in authority, did Bing Crosby ever really go boo 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 when he sang? Yes, there's a couple of records, uh, I think, in Learn to Croon from a picture called College Humor. Was that on purpose or because... No, because it was you... considered very classy. Then, you know, then from boo boo boo, they went to vo-do-de-o, and then right. hi-de-ho, and then ha-cha-cha. The great Joe Franklin. Happy birthday in heaven, Joe. We miss you. We miss you. I miss you not only as a friend, but those of us that enjoyed listening to you on radio and TV absolutely miss you. We'll talk with Dennis Kucinich in just a moment about the war in Ukraine and a bunch of other subjects that uh, we'll see what's on his mind. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A funny thing happened because this year marks the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq. And I think a lot of people, no matter where you fell on the Iraq war debate and whether you were Republican, a Democrat or independent, if you look at a lot of the objections that were raised to the war in Iraq 20 years ago, it looks like a lot of those objections were right on the money. And I think even a lot of the people that supported the war in Iraq were a little bit regretful as things unfolded and they weren't exactly what the Bush administration guaranteed they'd be. Now, here we are now with the world watching a war in Eastern Europe, and yet so many of the voices, particularly on the left, that were critical of the war in Iraq have not at all been critical of escalating the crisis in Ukraine. Instead, it seems like some of the anti-war voices that you hear most happen to be on the right. Well, someone who I have admired for literally decades has been very, very consistent in terms of pursuing the cause of peace for the last two decades and probably a long time before that. A former Democratic congressman from Ohio, the former mayor of Cleveland, and a two-time candidate for president of the United States. He's also the author of the book, The Division of Light and Power, the one and only Dennis Kucinich. Congressman, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's a real treat. Frank, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciated the invitation, and I look forward to our discussion. Uh, let me, before we get into what's happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe with the Nord Stream pipeline, let me anticipate one of the angry questions that uh, callers are going to call in about as soon as we hang up. And that's the fact that uh, you were on the Fox News channel with uh, Tucker Carlson recently. A lot of people uh, view Tucker, especially on the left, as a the devil, that he is someone to be shunned, that he's doctored this January 6th footage, that he's uh, been uh, manipulative in terms of his coverage of political events, and that nobody should go on his show for a serious discussion of political issues. And a lot of folks, especially on the left, are going to say, how can you take Dennis Kucinich seriously if he would go on Tucker Carlson's show? What do you say? I'm sure you've heard those objections far more than I have. What do you say to those that uh, that might take issue with you going on a show like Tucker Carlson? Well, you know, let's uh, first of all, Frank, uh, realize that I'm available uh, to go on your show, and I thought it would be very important to do so. I'm available to go on uh, NBC, ABC, uh, uh, TV, CBS, CNN, MSNBC. None of them have called me. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been on Substack now for uh, several weeks, uh, Dennis Kucinich's Substack.com. Uh, 
And I've written extensively about what's uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine and with respect to the Nord Stream uh, pipeline bombing. And, you know, my work's getting widely circulated. Uh, anybody in the media could have called me and asked me uh, to speak about it. No one else did. Tucker mm. Carlson did. Now, I'm, you know, to me, it's about uh, the audience, and it's a very big audience uh, that uh, deserves to hear the point of view that I'm offering and the fact that uh, he offered uh, uh, that opportunity uh, to me was very significant, and I'm appreciative of it. And uh, say, you know, what anyone will about Tucker Carlson, uh, he's not afraid to get into issues that are controversial. Mm. And, well, I don't have to agree with him on on, on everything. Uh, he did invite me, and I accepted. I, I'm glad you did, because uh, I think it's good for uh, people to hear someone of your experience who's sort of been um, in the places that you've been, both legislatively and in terms of world experience. Now, let's talk about the Ukraine situation before we drill down on the Nord Stream pipeline issue and the latest revelations that we've learned about there. The, the sort of the, the war is now a year old and the conventional wisdom that you hear on uh, conservative networks, liberal networks, talk radio, newspapers is that uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, really ambitious, very bloodthirsty. Sometimes he's compared to the Russian czars. Sometimes he's compared to Hitler. And the conventional wisdom is he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and he will devour any country that stands in his way. And this was an unprovoked invasion that all the world's democracies need to stand up to. Why is that premise flawed? Well, well, first of all, I don't, you know, I don't support uh, Russia uh, going into any other country other than Russia. Uh, but the accounts of the um, of of this current uh, situation in Ukraine are generally uh, vastly lacking in historical facts because it is indisputable that our own government, the United States, uh, for many reasons. Uh, displaced an elected Ukrainian president in 2014 and and installed a, a regime that was uh, more favorable to the interests of the United States, uh, NATO, and the West. Uh, that's, a, that's a fact. So you could almost say, as uh, Jeffrey Sachs has pointed out, that uh, the war goes back to 2014. The, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, you know, Ukraine is being used as a pawn here. Now, I represented a large Ukrainian community when mm. I was in Congress, and I and I, my heart is, is is grieves for the losses that have taken place in Ukraine. The people are very brave; uh, they've they've stood up to tremendous pressure. But Frank, this didn't need to happen. You know, there were agreements that were spurned by the U.S. and the West that could have prevented this from happening. You know, mainly to just say, look, NATO is not going to uh, camp uh, along the Russian border. Uh, but that's not what, you know, that uh, those agreements didn't happen. And any agreements subsequent that would have ended the war uh, haven't happened either. And the U.S. has been instrumental in blocking them. Uh, there's a grand global strategy here, which is and has been to weaken Russia sufficiently uh, to enable the U.S. to pursue a grander agenda of pivoting to China and maintain a, a global 
uh, economic and and military uh, hegemony, which, frankly, as someone who represented the city of Cleveland in the United States Congress for 16 years, I find to be uh, against the interests of the American people and uh, and puts us on a threshold of World War Three. Mm. Now, Frank, you know, you mentioned in your opening uh, in, in your opening remarks about Iraq. I, I want your your listeners to understand that when the drums were being beat for a war against Iraq, I led the effort in the United States Congress saying there is no proof that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction that Iraq has the intention or capability of attacking the United States. I give a detailed analysis to members of Congress in October of, uh, of 2002, before the, before the vote on the war. We voted to go to war anyway. But I can tell you that everything that I said back then turned out to be true. 20 right. years later, and a million you know, extra deaths in Iraqi that were not necessary, and, and five, perhaps as much as $5 trillion in money wasted on the Iraq war. And, and, and about 4,800 American uh, men and women killed uh, who were serving our country. Uh, no, I remember it vividly. And then when a lot of the uh, miscalculations or outright lies by the Bush administration came to pass, uh, you then led the effort for the impeachment of Bush and, uh, and Cheney. I think if you were to take a vote on that these days, the only person more enthusiastic about that than you might be Donald Trump. But uh, going back to the Ukraine uh, situation, there was some really explosive reporting by uh, Seymour Hersh and you've written extensively about this in your substack and spoken about this as well, that the Nord Stream pipeline might not have been blown up by the Russians, Nord Stream 2, which uh, obviously represented a dramatic escalation in the war and a major, major energy crisis for Eastern Europe. But it might have been blown up with the assistance of the United States or at least operatives backed by the United States. Explain to folks where you come down on this and why this is so significant as we look at this Russia-Ukraine conflict? Well, you know, what what most people haven't had a chance to consider, because the media in the West hasn't bothered to uh, explore it, is that uh, when when Nord Stream was blown up, uh, that there were... uh, there, there were discussions going on in the White House for for almost a year uh, about Nord Stream and what to do about it and how to uh, how to end it. Uh, President Biden himself, in a news conference on February seventh of two thousand two, uh, you know, promised uh, uh, through the media that he would end the pipeline. Uh, quote: If there was a Russian invasion, unquote. But the truth of the matter is, they were planning that before Russia invaded. Uh, planning the destruction of pipeline, and you know it wasn't a retali- so it was not a retaliatory act for Russia's invasion. It, I, I called it in my Substack post a market heist mm. because um, this destruction of Nord Stream One and Two were contemplated uh, for years, as as Washington watched Russia's rise as an energy provider to Europe. And uh, to certain energy interests in the United States, they saw that as highly negative, adverse to uh, uh, the global ambitions of some people who you know, are in a neoconservative camp uh, and want to see the U.S. as the number one geopolitical power. And control of energy is certainly one way to uh, help do that. But, but Biden, on February 7, 2022, 
you know, if Russia invades, there won't be a Nord Stream 2. We'll bring an end to it. I promise you will be able to do it. And, of course, uh, September 26, 2022, Nord Stream was, was blowing up. But, but, you know, when you look at Seymour Hersh's report, which I think is one of the most important pieces of journalism that we've seen in years. Absolutely. And it is investigative journalism. Uh, you know, he points out that uh, top uh, White House officials were conspiring to destroy Nord Stream, uh, you know, as early as a year before the Russian invasion. Uh, and so, you know, look, Frank, I was chairman of a congressional investigative subcommittee. You know, I didn't fall off a Christmas tree. I understand sometimes governments lie, and sometimes our government lies. And, you know, I don't like it. I want to believe in America at every step. But, you know, I come from Cleveland, Ohio, and, you know, like a lot of people in the Midwest, you know, you have to show me. What you see is what you get. And if if, if I see something that that looks sketchy, suspicious, you know, I have, a, I have an obligation to ask questions. And even if, even if, and especially if it's our own government. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very concerned that our policies with respect to Russia are setting us uh, on, a, on a wide path of a wider war. Uh, we have sacrificed the Ukrainian people uh, for our ambitions to uh, try to crush Russia economically and militarily. And then we're, that's just a warm-up for China. And frankly, I will tell you, uh, I'm not into megalomania. Uh, I love our country. I want our country to prosper. But war is the opposite of prosperity. And if we uh, if we we cannot win a conventional war fighting both Russia and China, and if we think a nuclear war, that's insane uh, because everybody loses. So you know what I'm trying to do is to focus on the facts, demand an investigation, get to the bottom of what's happening. And to stop these individuals who feel that they have unbridled power to be able to direct our military resources in any way they well please without even Congress knowing what's going on. Amen. Uh, talking with uh, former Congressman Dennis Kucinich, two-time Democratic candidate for, for president. Congressman, one of the things that... I'm wondering if it's been frustrating to you is where the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has been on the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, There was an article written about you recently, and I thought it was really just a clever headline, asking the question, is Dennis Kucinich the last Democrat for peace? And a lot of the voices that you would expect to be speaking up in opposition to escalating America's involvement in this Ukraine war, folks like Bernie Sanders, folks like uh, the squad, they have gone along with all of President Biden's requests for increased military aid, and they don't seem to be doing much to bring about a peaceful end to this conflict. As a longtime Democrat, progressive Democrat, are you frustrated with the anti-war voices on the left? Have those voices been somewhat muted? Of course they've been muted. Uh, You have a situation where uh, the Democratic leadership feels its obligation is to line up behind a Democratic White House. And actually, I think the best, you know, our congressional constitutional responsibility is to uh, express uh, the Congress as a co-equal branch of government, not as a footstool for an executive. That's not the way the Constitution works. Congress is a co-equal branch of government. Under Article 1, Section 8, only Congress has the ability to declare war. 
And the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline was an act of war. And, uh, and if Seymour Hersh's article is true, and if uh, this was planned even before the Russian invasion, that is the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, and there's plenty of reason to point to there's only a few governments who could have done this. Russia uh, was one of them, the U.S. the other. Uh, it is, it, you know, inconceivable that uh, that Russia would cut itself off from a lucrative market and blow up a pipeline and cost them billions to build. Uh, there's no evidence that they did. As a matter of fact, uh, even U.S. intelligence in a uh, almost comically veiled uh, article in the New York Times yesterday uh, uh, claimed that uh, there's no evidence that Russia was involved. This is U.S. anonymous, I might say. U.S. intelligence says Russia wasn't involved, but pro this is in the Times, pro-Ukrainian or pro-Ukrainian, a pro-Ukrainian group. And so, you know, uh, that that doesn't, you know, if the, if the Nord Stream sabotage is now being laid, laid by U.S. intelligence to a pro-Ukrainian group, uh, that does not preclude that the group consisted of top U.S. officials. Right. After all, after all, who's been more pro-Ukrainian than this White House? Right, right. Uh, so, right. So it, back when you were running for president in 2004, when people were trying to figure out which way is up uh, with respect to the Iraq war, you came out with a pretty detailed plan to get the U.N. into Iraq and get the U.S. out. Now, if uh, President Biden were to seek your counsel on this, what would you like to see the United States do going forward with all the mistakes that have been made? Everything that's done is done. Here we are in 2023 going forward. What should the U.S. role be in terms of this conflict? Well, you know, Frank, first of all, uh, the U.S., uh, the White House would not see what they have been doing as as a mistake. Uh, this is ideologically driven. And anytime you have uh, political decisions that are based on, on ideology, you're always going to run into trouble. But, but you know, they should have gone back to uh, the Minsk Agreement, which was a way of assuring uh, uh, Russia's territorial integrity and Ukrainian sovereignty. That agreement's already out there, but they basically, uh, German Chancellor, um, uh, the former German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel, had uh, said, look, this whole thing was just a game so that we could buy time to advance on, have NATO advance uh, against Russia. Uh, Look, there's no trust right now, so you have to rebuild trust. Uh, You don't rebuild trust by continuing the war. It has to be a ceasefire, and it has to be pretty quick. Uh, You're not going to, you cannot permit uh, the uh, Russian-speaking Ukraine to live in eastern Ukraine in the area known as uh, uh, the Donbass. You cannot permit them to be vulnerable. And that area, uh, we could have settled this before by, by making it a, a fairly non-aligned area, uh, but we've lost that chance because the U.S. was subsidizing Ukrainian attacks on the eastern Donbass, about 14,000 uh, Russian-speaking people who lived in Ukraine were were, were killed, and Russia, uh, uh, by virtue of the Russian Constitution, had to come in and protect uh, those people. There's not going to be a uh, ceding uh, by Russia of Crimea, nor of the Donbass, and I think that we could we could pretty much come up with an agreement uh, to stop uh, uh, the Russian advance there, to restore Ukraine's position. Ukraine should should uh, be uh, free of constraints of either east or west. 
you know, Ukraine uh, had a lot of prosperity. They're the breadbasket of the world in many ways. Uh, but we have – the U.S. has been responsible for helping to sacrifice a generation of young Ukrainian mm. men and women to this, to this war. And, uh, you know, we have to see what our nation does in this regard. This isn't just one way. I'm not in favor of anything Russia does here. But I can tell you that uh, my first obligation as a, as a congressman when I was in Congress uh, was to the people of the United States of America. I pledge allegiance to the American flag and do so proudly. And I don't want to see our, our nation led down the pike by, by people who are, are uh, neoconservatives, who have this idea of, of, uh, of an American imperium globally. That is crazy. And why don't we just start taking care of things here at home? Mm. We got people begging, begging for for food on on uh, at freeway exits. Uh, people are struggling to survive in this uh, highly inflationary economy, which in some ways was driven by the energy shortage, rising food prices. We've got problems here in America. Uh, our, uh, our cities are being overrun by crime, and we're screwing around all over the world, stirring up battles. Are you, I mean, what's that about? Well, you know, to when, me, when, I don't when, buy any of it. When you talk about that, and I think that resonates with a lot of listeners on the left and the right, oh, why are we uh, messing around in Eastern Europe and spending $100 billion there when there are real crises here in the United States? I don't think anywhere is that uh, problem more pronounced and that dichotomy of uh, priorities in Washington more pronounced than looking at what happened in East Palestine. Now, we still get some calls from uh, residents in East Palestine but uh, that's your home state, Ohio. From where you're standing, uh, I mean, I know you alluded to the East Palestine situation in your remarks at the Lincoln Memorial Rally against the uh, the war machine the other day. But from where you're standing, does the failure to handle the East Palestine train derailment properly does that underscore the need to kind of focus on issues here at home more than trying to help uh, what's what's a very serious situation in Ukraine? Okay, let's let's look at it this way. East Palestine has this train wreck which spews all these chemicals, okay, throughout that area in Ohio. It's about an hour and 20 minutes from Cleveland, by the way, where I live, and, and into Pennsylvania as well, uh, the, the, the results of the wreck uh, spewed this, these chemicals and, and the gases. So what does the president do? Uh, people are rushing to East Palestine trying to help, and the president goes to, to Kiev and gives, you know, hundreds of millions more to the Ukrainian government. I mean, come on. You know, what's our priorities? We, we we don't we can't meet the needs of the American people. We have we have you know we're, we're debating right now if if we can protect uh, uh, Social Security and whether uh, Medicare costs are going to be held in, in check by the government or if there's going to be an increase in taxes as a result of rising costs and and you know this is the old guns and butter debate. You know we think we can go around the world looking for dragons to slay. Well, we've got the dragons of poverty. Uh, the dragons of, of low income, the dragons of crime, uh, you know, the, the, the dragons of, industri- of deindustrialization that are still with us. We have to deal with that. We're, we're acting like, uh, uh, like we don't have any problems at all. We can just tell everybody else how to live. Right. You know, all of us have been in neighborhoods where there's always some, you know, busybody that says, uh, 
wants to run everybody else's life. And the world doesn't work that way. The United States has to has to uh, trim its sails a little bit uh, and quit trying to uh, stick our nose in everybody else's business. You know, we have over 800 bases around the world. We have a couple hundred bases in the general area of uh, geographical area of China. Uh, we're putting increased pressure on China. Look, I oppose China trade, Frank. I, I, there, were, there, were, uh, there were at least five lobbyists for every member of Congress uh, during the China trade uh, debate. And I opposed it. I had lobbyists for uh, Boeing come into my office. And I, I knew that they were going to give China the prototypes mm-hmm. for the latest aircraft in, in the uh, China trade deal. You know, and, and President Biden, vote, when he was in, in Senate, he voted for that agreement. I knew it was wrong. You know, you do, all, all your listeners right now, you think, well, the people are in there. They must know what they're doing. Uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe they make the wrong decisions. Maybe they're not any more informed than, you know, anyone else. And maybe sometimes they have uh, 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 things in their mind that really aren't about the interests of people in, you know, like in the working class neighborhood that I live in in Cleveland. So what are you going to do with respect to 2024? Are you hoping to uh, support a primary challenge to uh, to President Biden? Any chance that you might run yourself one one more time? What's your inclination at this point? Well, you know, I'm not really I'm not into group think this party stuff is starting to wear thin. Mm. You know, in some ways, there hasn't been much of a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. And I say this having been in politics over 50 years, Uh, you know, the. Uh, so would I support a challenger in a primary if someone comes forward that uh, uh, that will uh, challenge this uh, consensus that is taking us on the path to World War Three? Of course. Uh, do I preclude uh, entering as an independent at some point? I don't I don't preclude that. But I'd like to see someone uh, be successful in the primary to take America in a, in a different direction, uh, because right now we are we are on the course. Of World War Three, there's just no question about it. We cannot pretend that we're going to dictate to China uh, over Taiwan. We cannot pretend that we're going to uh, uh, displace the Russian government or the Chinese government. Uh, we've already pushed those countries into an alliance against us. We're increasing, uh, increasingly losing allies around the world with the approach we're taking. Uh, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of a strong America. I'm all in favor of making sure that we can defend ourselves. Well, these guys in the White House don't seem to know the difference between offense and defense. Mm. And Frank, you know, I was a third-string quarterback and I'm not a very good <laughs> football team, but I knew the difference between offense and defense. Uh, you know, you are. Whenever we've uh, spoken over the years, we always tend to speak about such weighty issues, and I always picture you as being very cerebral and uh, taking on the big thoughts, the big battles, the big fights. I am just curious, uh, as we end, and I'll let you get to bed, what do you do for fun? What does Dennis Kucinich do on a Friday night with his wife when you're just trying to kick back, relax, and chill out? What do you do for fun? Who says I'm not having fun right now? (laughs) I love it. I I mean, you know, I mean, my wife and I will go for, you know, long walks and hikes and, uh, you, you know, we love to tour and we love to meet our friends around the country. And, you know, there's a lot of things we, we do for fun. I love to read. I love to go to theater. Uh, you know, we're, we're in New York every once in a while. I love New York. I had, I'm 
you know, I, I have a very active life, and it seems to be getting more active uh, uh, as I go along. So I appreciate so much a chance to be on your show, Frank. And if you, uh, if your uh, listeners get a chance, uh, go to my uh, Substack page, uh, you know, Dennis Kucinich at Substack.com, and you can see the articles that you've referenced, Frank. And I'm going to be writing in the next uh, few weeks uh, more about uh, Ukraine, uh, about Iraq, uh, what happened there 20 years ago. I warned America the direction we were going in. Look, I'm not a genius. I come from a, a working class area in Cleveland, Ohio. And I, you know, and I'm, I watch what's going on in Washington and I see these guys are not functioning in the interests of the American people. And so, you know, I'm, uh, again, I'm just a regular guy, but I'm not, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to sell me uh, a, a couple of watches uh, that uh, have been, uh, uh, you know, have been stolen and uh, are worth like 25 cents and tell me they're worth, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm somebody that. Congressman, it's been a, it's been a treat talking with you. Uh, I'll let you get to sleep. The next time you're in New York, I know a very good uh, vegetarian restaurant that you would uh, just love. You got to let me take uh, my wife and I take you guys to dinner. That'd be a lot of fun. You're on. Thanks. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Dennis Kucinich, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Stupid Girl by Garbage. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, just join the Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, and that is a discussion group for the subjects that we cover on this show. And uh, if you haven't, if you're not overwhelmed yet, Mark Levin to Dennis Kucinich, from right to left, we're going to talk with Kelsey Grammer in about a half hour as part of the AC report. Very much looking forward to that. And then in our final hour, we'll talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade. I'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Yesterday was a big day in the Morano household. The solar panel guy came for a visit. And he examined the roof and everything like that. And then by the time I woke up, I apparently was delaying him from getting into the attic and the crawl space because I woke up and he was doing something in the backyard. I don't know, looking at the roof or something. I don't know. And my wife said, you know, they didn't tell me he was going to have to go in the attic. And he said he was going to have to go in there to check if they can, if, if they, if something, I don't know. And she said, well, I told him you can't go in there because both my son and my husband are sleeping. And I said, honey, very clever of you to throw me in there as well, because 
I know you wouldn't care about letting him into the uh, the attic or the crawl space if it was just me. You don't want to disrupt Carmine's nap. But sure enough, we both woke up and uh, he went in to, uh, and examined things. And they're going to get back to us in about seven days with uh, with an estimate as to what the solar panels will save us. Interestingly enough, my neighbor... Um, he they he went to his house afterwards and as was doing the same thing. He was up on his roof. So he's at the same phase with the same company that we are. So interestingly enough, my other neighbor who already has solar panels sent his solar panel person over to us. And I said to Rachel, that's great. She said, why is that great? I get to spend another two-hour meeting with solar panel people? And uh, I said, no, we we should get prices from all of us and whoever – comes back with the best price for us on a new roof, that's who we should go with. And she says, yeah, but you got to understand, my time is pretty limited. I can't meet with solar panel people all day. So uh, we'll see where that goes. We'll, hopefully we'll get a good price, uh, a good final price in seven days. But uh, we're excited about this. And a number of people mentioned that the solar panels degrade over time. My father was over yesterday. He said he said his panels for about 15, 16 years, they've barely degraded at all. So I think a lot of those concerns are... Not necessarily well-founded. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In my judgment, as a recovering child myself, and as the father of a boy, 15-month-old boy, I don't think there is anything more American. I don't think there's anything more fun. I don't think there's anything more exhilarating about the childhood experience than a sleepover. Some of my fondest memories as a child are of having people for sleepovers at my house and for going over my other friend's house to have a sleepover there. It was delightful. It was really so much fun. And really going into, in junior high school especially, I would host these movie marathons and we would have everybody, we'd watch three or four movies and order pizza. It was delightful. And I would have all my friends over, and we they'd, they'd sleep over, and we'd watch one movie in a different genre. Could be science fiction, horror, could be drama, could be comedy, could be musical, whatever it would be. And everybody would nominate films, and we'd all vote using either ranked choice voting or approval voting or cumulative voting. And it was a lot of fun. The voting process was fun. The eating junk food was fun. The watching the movies was fun. The talking about uh, our friends and our peers was fun. It was delightful. And yet now the sleepover is in trouble. Uh, there is a big debate over whether or not children should be allowed to have sleepovers. And, you know, and at first I sort of ignored this story because it started with a bunch of moms on TikTok in these viral videos explaining why they don't allow sleepovers. But lo and behold, 
I'm reading article after article in USA Today and from a publication called Motherly. And it looks like the no sleepover parents are winning out. They're now the majority. And evidently, sleepovers are one of the most controversial topics in the parenting realm lately. And this great debate has many people questioning whether sleepovers are safe or harmful. It seems, according to Motherly, that more parents are opting for the no sleepover rule. But when did sleepovers, which when I grew up, and I suspect when many of you grew up, which were previously considered a rite of passage for children, when did they become so problematic? And I think a lot of this gets tied directly to TikTok, which can't be banned fast enough as far as I'm concerned. And I'm curious if you think sleepovers are a good idea or a bad idea. And I'm not talking about just letting your child go to the wolves, have no idea where he's sleeping, whose house that he's sleeping at. But if your son, let's say, is 10 years old, he's got another friend that's 10 years old, and you know this boy, you know this boy's parents, you have the contact information not only for your child and the other boy, but the other boy's parents, and you have a relative trust that these parents are not going to let your son gargle with Xanaflesh, what is the harm of a sleepover? I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great adventure. I mean, you ever have like a camping trip in the backyard where you do a sleepover in the backyard? So much fun. And I think this trend in parenting against the sleepover I think this is horrible. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In just a few minutes, uh, in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Kelsey Grammer, the uh, legendary actor, many-time Emmy Award winner, many-time Tony Award winner, a great guy, and he is going to be... In Atlantic City at my uh, one of my favorite spots in the world this weekend, and I'm very much looking forward to talking with him. Kelsey Grammer is a great guy. I got to meet him when he was in New York not long ago. We talked about his beer, and uh, we talked about all sorts of other things. There's some major news on the Frasier revival front. We're going to get into that. As well. I'm very much looking forward to that. And meanwhile, speaking of Atlantic City, which I'm very excited to be returning to the last weekend in August, want to give a couple, I want to remind uh, folks that we are now being heard on a terrific talk station, Talk 1400, W O N D in Atlantic City, a great station that I enjoy listening to. And I got to go on uh, there with uh, my good friend, Scott Cronick, who's been a guest on this show many times. Over the uh, over the couple of years that we've been doing this show, I was on with him on uh, Wednesday night. That was a lot of fun, and I believe I'm going to be on with um, I'm going to be on with uh, Dan Klein as well, who is their afternoon guy, who's a great guy. Very very pleased to be on uh, WOND. It's a great radio station, and uh, I am excited to be a part of the program. By the way, I want to thank Wyatt Cox who is the program director and has a whole bunch of other titles over at the Nevada Talk Radio Network. And the Nevada Talk Radio Network 
was one of the first station groups to carry our show. And Wyatt Cox does this terrific classic radio theater. And he was kind enough on his show last Saturday to give us a shout-out and WOND a shout-out. Here's a little bit of Wyatt Cox from his program last weekend. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Before we get to Casey, I want to give a shout-out to my good friends at WOND in Atlantic City. Uh, a friend of mine now is working Sunday afternoons there, Frank Morano, The Other Side of Midnight, along with Judge Janine and uh, Larry Cutlow. They are a part of the lineup, and I hope you will give them a listen. And my friend Frank Morano, you're following me. You're stalking Wyatt Cox, <laughs> and you shouldn't be doing that. So thanks. We'll see. Thanks for that, Wyatt. Uh, if you're into old-time radio shows, by the way, Wyatt Cox show on the uh, on Classic Radio Theater, it's great. You can go to uh, Nevada Talk Radio, their website, the Nevada Talk Radio Network, or just go to WyattCox.net. He does a great job. All right. 800-848-9222. Where do you come down on the question of sleepovers? I am 100% absolutely gung-ho enthusiastic about it. And I think the arguments against it are overly uh, paranoid, honestly. Hey, what, what say you? Uh, let me begin with uh, Brian in Baltimore. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for always bringing up Atlantic City. I'm uh, kind of a, close to a 70-year-old historian. I used to stay when I went down with my parents at the Chalfonheim Hall and Marlborough Blenheim. And uh, that was the good old days. But anyway, get getting to the sleepovers, uh, they were good and bad. When I was a kid, everybody in the block took turns for an outdoor sleepover. And uh, it was usually a World War II stinky, moldy pup tent that we put up on a wet lawn. And <laughs> we, 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 and, st- and a bunch of stinky kids were in there. But we had a hell of a good time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was good and bad. But we suffered through it, and the, when I think back on it now, it was good memories, and I wouldn't. Uh, I think it's uh, that's a great thing to do. I never had an indoor sleepover. I don't know about those, but uh, sleeping out in the backyard was an experience, and it was uh, it was good and bad. But like I said, when I think back, I'm pushing seventy, and it was fun. Uh, Brian, thank you. I'm with you. Give our best to uh, all the guys at WCBM over there. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. In a video with the on-screen text, Why No Sleepovers, TikTok user BMCPHER posted a news story about child sexual abuse with the caption, Some things are more important than fun. Let me tell you something. That is such nonsense. You need to know the parents. You need to know whose house your child is going to be sleeping at. I mean, there's no way you can tell me that you're going to get to know your son's friend or daughter's friend's parents well enough to trust them to have your child sleep over there and then have a legitimate concern about sex abuse. I just and you have to um, have enough enough communication with your child about what to do if, you know, they're touched inappropriately or something like that. TikTok user Tori Yav posted a video saying, my children will not be allowed to have sleepovers. And in another video on the topic wrote, you really never know what goes on behind closed doors. Come on. This is such garbage. Not only will my son uh, be allowed to host sleepovers, but he will 
be certainly allowed to go to sleepovers at uh, at other people's homes. Uh, what do you think? 800-848-9222. Where do you come down in the great sleepover debate? That is a question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, anything else we've covered as well. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk with the great Kelsey Grammer in a few minutes. Let me begin with Trisha in New Jersey, who's been patiently holding. Hello, Trisha. Hi. I'm calling from Trumbull, Connecticut. And I was very glad that you had Mark Levin on with you tonight. And uh, I, along with other books, I I have, I think, all of his books except Rescuing Sprite. But I was a tea partier who carried a copy of Liberty and Tyranny uh, to dozens of tea party events and rallies in Washington, D.C., not just in Connecticut. And um, about... The uh, Tucker Carlson um, videos of January 6th that have just been made available, um, people are commenting from both parties, of course, Schmucky Schumer, and I was shocked, well, I shouldn't be surprised, that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans came out against uh, Fox News and Tucker for revealing the other side, which was deceptively hidden in the um, January 6th commission in, in Congress. All right. Uh, thank you, Tricia. I, I want to try and get to some other people as well. But, yeah, that book, uh, Liberty and Tyranny. And if you didn't hear my interview with Mark Levin, uh, you can check out the podcast at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Very kind of Mark uh, at the end of a long day. To uh, to spend some time with us, very kind. RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. That book, Liberty and Tyranny, was really like the anthem of the Tea Party movement. I alluded to the fact that my son's babysitter, Lorraine, uh, she keeps that book on her bookshelf next to her Bible, she said. And Lorraine was the head of the Tea Party in our organization. And we're friends for a long time. And she's kind enough to help us with uh, watching Carmine While I Sleep and Rachel Works. But um, she that, you know, that really resonates with people. And that book that she just mentioned, Trisha, Rescuing Sprite, that is a great book for people that don't care about politics. It's a dog book. It's about his book, Sprite. It's a wonderful book. And if you don't care at all about politics, if you are totally disinterested in Mark Levin's politics, it is a great book to read. I got that for a friend of mine, my friend Miriam, who's a dog lover and who lost one of her dogs, and she cried reading that book. That's how emotional it is. It's really a a terrific book. Uh, Matt Blaze, where do you come down on the question of sleepovers? Not that you're a parent, but you were once a child. Did you participate? 100%. Absolutely. So you're with me on this. Oh, yeah. I went to many sleepovers, had them at my house, went to other people's houses, did the backyard camping thing. Loved having sleepovers. It was always so much fun. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, Kenneth, what about you? You're a little younger than than we are, but w- w- what was your upbringing as it relates to sleepovers? Oh, one thousand percent. They were the best. My mom allowed sleepovers because my parents are divorced, so my mom allowed sleepovers. But I'd see my dad on the weekends, and he would not allow sleepovers. When you say he wouldn't allow them, he wouldn't allow you to have people sleep over, or he wouldn't allow you to sleep over other people's houses? Both. Why? Why? What was the rationale? His rationale was that you're not going to get any sleep, so what's the point of them? Well, because it's fun. 
That's exactly the point of that. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, Dad, that's the point of a sleepover. And he's like, nope, you're not doing it. Especially so, if it's a Friday. What does it matter? So this is what I would do. Sleep. I would tell my dad, oh, Dad, this weekend mom wants to do something, so I can't <laughs> see you this week. And I'd go sleep over a friend's house. I don't condone that level of uh, dishonesty. But your dad should have allowed them. Um, and uh, I, I, I think my wife and I are on the same page on this. We, I guess I should have talked about this before declaring to I talked about this with her privately before declaring to all the world that uh, Carmine will be able to participate in sleepovers. But it is what it is. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Parents have been debating the pros and cons of these child sleepover parties long before these TikTok influencers. But this is, appears to have tipped the scale Against sleepovers, uh, there's a lot of scrutiny of the concept of helicopter parenting, and there came a new generation of parents that decided to ban sleepovers. They would cite all sorts of reasons, not knowing the parents well enough. Well, get to know the parents. Know who your child is spending time with. Questions about gun ownership and safety. Ask the parents, do you have a gun? And lingering fears of sexual assault and abuse. In a 2016 study of over 1,000 Australian parents. Now, it's a different country. It's also a continent. Don't tell the gentleman that played the $1,000 Minute yesterday. 89% of participants said they don't want their children attending a sleepover because of safety concerns. I think the safety concerns are way overblown. And my son will, with my wife's permission... Absolutely be permitted to have a sleepover. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. One, two, three, four, five, six open lines. Let me say hello to uh, Chris in the Catskills. Chris, you know, that's where Kelsey Grammer's beer is from, the Catskills. What part, you know? Uh, I don't know from the Catskills. I was in the Catskills once. I, I, I went to a barbecue and a casino. You know... As I'm waiting on hold, I'm researching Dennis Kucinich. His political career is fascinating. But if you look, his I remember hearing Imus talk about how he was mayor of Cleveland when Imus was, was, got fired at WNBC and was working in Cleveland. And so Kucinich, to me, he's like the precursor of the populist sort of improved government movement, but from a more intellectual point of view than Donald Trump on the Republican side nowadays, way back then, and he got rejected by his own party, losing Democratic primaries throughout his career. Yes. And he got, and, and he very, got redistricted out of, out of his congressional district. Right. No, I, I remember that. And uh, it was very interesting. Last year, and thanks for the call, Chris, he ran for mayor again for his old job. And he ran on a platform, and we didn't get to get into it today because, you know, we already had spent a half hour on uh, on the Ukraine situation. He ran on a platform of getting tough on crime. And Dennis Kucinich is a progressive's progressive. I don't think anybody would dispute his left-wing bona fides. And yet he recognizes that crime is important. You can't have crime continuing to go up, whether it's in New York, Atlantic City, Cleveland, Chicago, wherever. It's a big problem. Ed is in Massapequa. Hello, Ed. Hey, hello, sir. Uh, anyway, I grew up in affluent, affluent suburbs. I was very poor, but people around me had some money. And with sleepovers, we had tree houses and we made s'mores like the movies in Sandlot and Superbad. And, you know, it would just... um. 
you know, if it wasn't for our friends and that this kids going through, like, especially teenagers, they need that, you know, especially with COVID and they were all shut-ins and stuff. We didn't know what was going on. It's very important. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I agree with you. Thank you. Uh, is there anything more fun than that? It's great. Uh, and uh, Ellen just posted in the Facebook group, her grandchildren have been having sleepovers. Uh, the granddaughter just had a sleepover last weekend. Even um, Alex Barnard said when he was a child, there was a series of years when his birthday party was a sleepover. I went to a bunch of birthday party sleepovers. It was delightful. So you know what I'm pleased by so far? And I want to hear the alternative view. But um, so far, nobody is going along with any of the parents quoted on TikTok or these articles saying you shouldn't have sleepovers, which leads me to think that maybe there's some rationality left in the world and maybe some of the media coverage of the sleepover debate is overblown. Maybe it's not really that much of a debate. Maybe it's just uh, limited to a niche group of overprotective mothers on TikTok. I don't know. Tell me. 800-848-9222. Michael is in Baltimore on WCBM. Hello, Michael. <laughs> How you doing, Loss? I'm hanging yeah, in there, man. Sleepovers, sleepovers were fun. I would, I would let my daughter have a sleepover. And then I would go into the room or wherever they gathered at and plop my butt down and start talking. And then the next thing I hear is, Dad, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm here to find out what you all are up to because something's going to happen tonight. (laughs) But the point of it was I always had a sleepover, and if I couldn't have my daughter be trusted, which – I never did trust them. <laughs> they were kids. They were grown teenagers, and uh, I'd have fun with it. But basically, I trusted my daughter, and I really did, and they had fun. I used to have uh, cookouts with them and, and uh, make bonfires and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, you, you strike me over, as— uh, I knew they weren't getting me sleep. Yeah, uh, you strike me as kind of a cool dad, Michael. Would you agree with that characterization? Uh, I was too cool. <laughs> I, 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 I was actually, um, uh, I regretted some of the ways I was. I was too much of a friend to my daughter. But I raised her by myself until I met my wife. And I guess my daughter was 11 when I met my wife. And I took care of her. I got her when she was like uh, six months old. And I raised her by myself until she, until I met my wife. But yeah, I was too cool. I think. So, Mike, I think what you're saying from a hosting sleepover perspective, you're all for parents doing it, you know, as long as there's adequate supervision involved. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and you got to let them have a little fun with it. Exactly. But, um, and you also make sure that they know that um, they are they are being supervised, right? And that. Uh, uh, that they do have a little bit of freedom, and basically, yeah, I always gave her that benefit of the doubt. And more than not, sometimes she get herself in trouble by telling me the truth too much. <laughs> well, well, give me an example. Give me one example. Um, uh, like say, um, uh, she take my what's I on? Smoke cigarettes. Oh, ah, my God. I see. I uh, see. All right, Michael. She, they, uh, you know, Michael, she, I, she get herself in trouble. That I got way. you. Okay, I got you. Mike. You I'm know. glad. I'm anyway. glad. I'm glad you're doing well now. I'm glad she's doing well. Thank you. I want to try and get to some other people before we talk to Kelsey Grammer. Frank is in Levittown. Hello, Frank. 
Hey, Frank, how are you? Uh, I, have a, I have two sides of this. I'm for sleepovers. I have a young daughter, and I have three other older children that we always had sleepovers, and we always sent them the sleepovers. But um, on my end, I was molested oh, at a boy. sleepover. Um, it was the boy <clears throat> I was sleeping over. It wasn't the parents. And my parents knew the parents very well, bowling and going out on excursions on the weekends with them. So it, in my case, it wasn't the parents. It was the boy I was going over the house. How with. old were you? I was 13 years old. Wow. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry that you went through that. I appreciate you sharing that with this audience. Um, so why did has that experience, the fact that you were molested, you know, in prime sleepover age range, has that experience colored your view of whether or not children, whether or not uh, uh, parents should allow their 13-year-old to be a part of a sleepover? Um, well, that's why I said there's, I, uh, I have mixed emotions on it because I do get to know my daughter's uh, friend's parents very well. I try to, but you never know. Um, and also, I have a brother-in-law who is now a sex offender who was molesting his daughter's friends when they came over. There was three instances of it, which we just found out about about two years ago. Right, but that's not at all connected to your incident when you were 13. No, no, no. No, not at all. But I know a lot of people are worried about it. I, I, I know what you said when you said, you know, maybe it's isolated incidences. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But in my case, there's a few of them. And I was just, I'm always, it's always in my mind. Well, so know, it, it sounds happen. like, it sounds like you're almost making the case that you shouldn't allow your child to have a sleepover. Um, you know, and that's why I said, I, I, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I have mixed emotions of it. I always worry. I'm very uh, hypersensitive of when my daughter goes over people's houses. It's always in my mind. Me and my wife talk about it every single time. I said, I'm very worried. I'm very worried. So my wife will tell me, you know, you, you worry too much. I said, but you know, you never ever know. Yeah, you could know somebody, and like you said, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, and you given, really don't. Given what you've been through, I, I don't know that anybody could uh, could uh, give you a hard time for being too cautious. Frank, I, I appreciate you uh, you sharing that and uh, giving me giving us your perspective on that. All right, thank you, Frank. Yeah, you know, it's funny you hear that, and I'll be honest, I hadn't even considered that, and shame on me. But uh, I hadn't even considered getting sexually molested, getting molested or hurt by the you by your friend, forgetting about the parents. That's where I, my head goes. The adults in the the room. I think that you know it really doesn't change my perspective. Um, I think that the solution to that is making sure that there's adequate supervision. Right? You have to make sure that. Uh, you know, you're, there are safeguards uh, to make sure that uh, the parents of, uh, you know, of your child's friend are, you know, are watching what's going on here. Uh, but that's a such a sad story. Such a sad story. Uh, you know, Kelsey Grammer, who we're going to talk to in a minute, he is somebody that has dealt with a whole bunch of tragedy. And I said to him when he was here, I'm amazed that he maintains such a great attitude he has seen family members murdered. He has seen family members raped. He has seen uh, family members die in pretty tragic accidents. And uh, he's had a very, very tough time. Uh, his parents divorced and he was raised in New Jersey by his mom and his maternal grandparents. 
The family then moved to Florida, and shortly afterwards, when Kelsey Grammer was 12, his grandfather died of cancer. Then his father was murdered in 1968. Then his sister was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. In 1980, his two brothers died in a scuba diving accident. Now, if one of those things had happened to me, well, maybe not the grandfather with cancer, but it's different when they're raising it. But if one of those things had happened to me, I think it would have shaken me to my core and really changed me in devastating, irreparable ways. And yet I talked to Kelsey Grammer, and I'm sure he's had his own issues that he's had to deal with. In fact, I know he has. But he is the most balanced, down-to-earth guy in the world, not for a celebrity, but for anybody. And I think part of the reason that he's like that is because of the role that faith has played in his life. We're going to get into it in uh, in a bit. By the way, that's the name of his beer, Faith American Beer. Uh, so we'll talk about that with him in just a moment. But first, let me say hello to Karen in Manhattan. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you? I wanted to tell you, well, I'm much older than that, but when I was in high school, we were having a sleepover at my friend Cheryl's house. But guess what? Her parents were away. And my mother wouldn't think of calling the parents because she knew all the parents very well. But she happened to pick up the extension of the phone, probably on purpose, and she hears my friend saying that some of the boys are going to sleep over. Oh, it was innocent. Well, all we did at that oh, well, time I was bet. kiss. But I'm saying she wouldn't think of calling Cheryl Simon's mother. She knew her. But how do you know the parents aren't away? My, nie- my nieces and nephews have sleepovers. I don't know if the parents are away. Well, I mean, my, my that's niece's why, that's mom why I think... wouldn't think of talking. She knows the parents very well. Well, but Karen, wouldn't... that's where I think you have to have a conversation with the parents. Just make sure they're going to be home. I guess. I guess they should, because that's when people had sleepovers, when the parents were away in parties. Well, my sister even, she came home early. She was away with her husband, and they were having a whole party in there. Uh, well, I, I, that they is... Didn't expect them to come home. I, I, that's not something that I would uh, recommend you go along with from a parent's perspective. Thank you. Hey, uh, we're going to get to uh, more of your calls later. The great Kelsey Grammer, Emmy Award winner, Tony Award winner, beer enthusiast, Atlantic City enthusiast, will join us on the AC Report straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Be a rumble on the promenade 
And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Well, it is time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in America. That's right, Atlantic City, where we're now very, very proud to be airing on WOND Talk 1400, as well as all the other great stations that are carrying our show. And this week, we have a special treat. We get to take a look at what's happening in Atlantic City with someone who's not only an award-winning actor, someone who has a movie which is just tearing up the box office right now, but someone who seems to be visiting Atlantic City so much these days that he probably qualifies for a lifetime of free buffets. I'm very pleased to welcome back award-winning actor and the founder of Faith American Beer, Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey, it's great to talk with you again. Good morning. Frank, always a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate you always making time for us. Uh, you know what a fan I am of, of your work. It was a real treat to meet you when uh, when you were in New York, and it's always such a, a treat to talk with you. Uh, before we talk about the beer and what you're doing in Atlantic City this weekend, uh, congratulations on the success of the Jesus Revolution. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm hoping to. For folks who aren't familiar with it, uh, tell us about this film. What's it about? Well, it's it's based on fact. It's based on the the late sixties, early seventies, when a Jesus movement basically sort of was inspired and uh, generated out of uh, a little a little church in Southern California, and sort of took over the country. It was an extraordinary thing, and uh, eventually there was a cover on Time magazine called "The Jesus Revolution," the, the title of the magazine, and uh, you know, just a few years before, they said, uh, you know, "Is God dead?" on the cover of Time magazine. So. Uh, it's been it's a very interesting turnaround and it's a very very it's just a lovely reminder that faith is a very powerful message to give and can offer people a lot of solace and comfort and uh and a place to be a place to be free and it was uh it's a it's a a real pleasure to have been in the movie it's also very interesting to me that it has quadrupled box office expectations. It's doing very well financially. It's also gotten some pretty good reviews critically. And you haven't been hesitant to talk about your faith and how much that's meant to you. Is that a pretty unusual thing in Hollywood these days for a star of your caliber to be so open talking about their faith? Well, honestly, you know, I don't think so, really. I mean, it's yeah, it's not the one that gets the attention. <laughs> Because it's a it's a message that's sort of um, contrary to what you know popular belief is, but uh, in the in the quiet recesses of Hollywood and all with all the people I know, uh, there is a, a terrific like, I'm not going to say a faith based community, but there's a comfort with the idea that they you know grow up in a Christian church or or go into Sunday school or whatever it is, and there's a kind of a quiet understanding that we have a relationship with God or Jesus or whatever you want to call it, and. Um, we're entitled to that. We don't go around, you know, talking about it too much. But in this instance, I suddenly thought, well, you know what? I, I've been denying this for a long time. Not denying it, actually, but but uh, being quiet about it uh, and holding it sort of close to my own heart. And that, that was enough for me. But then here was an opportunity to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to claim this. I'm not going to pretend I don't believe in God. I'm not going to pretend I, I don't uh, believe in Jesus Christ. And so um, that's my story. <laughs> 
It's very interesting that over the last 20 years, we've seen an uptick in things like depression. We've seen an uptick in things like uh, alcoholism, substance abuse, suicide, and we've seen a decrease in church attendance, all sorts of churches, not just uh, Christianity, but organized religion in general. A lot of people believe those two things are linked, the decline in participation in organized religion and the uptick in other societal ills. Do you you have a take on that? Well, I'll tell you what, if if people who do um, register that sort of stuff and and, um, chronicle it, um, I think they'll find that that's probably a true statement. I would suspect it is because, you know, group worship goes back, you know, to before the Greeks. And, uh, of course, they made theater part of their religion, which was actually a good thing. But there was there was this idea that you always had um, a series of like experiences that when when shared gave you hope, were uplifting, were um, inclusive in terms of a community, stuff like that. And uh, I think that's invaluable for the human experience. We actually want to be with friends. We want to have our community. We want to know that we belong somewhere. And when you understand that your church can actually be that place, that's a pretty extraordinary thing. There's not a lot of churches that actually are really good at, you know, pitching that message. It it, it has taken us some time to get back to the idea that we can have faith, be decent people, and not have to suffer some sort of weird criticism from an outside source that just wants to shut that all down, because it's about control in the end. One one group gets something, and then you know the ascendancy happens to be, um, you know, faith is out and uh, mayhem is in. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Now, I, I think uh, you, you speak volumes about the social value of connecting with people instead of staying home and uh, connecting with people only through a screen. Makes a lot of sense. You named your beer Faith American. Something tells me that's not just a coincidence. Right. Well, it's, you know, my, my daughter's name is Faith, of course. So it's, 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 she's the moniker, sort of, you know, inspiration for the moniker. But it's no accident that it's Faith American, because I believe in America and I love America. And and uh, it's, it's good beer, so I don't have to actually apologize for that. Uh, but the whole notion has always been that, you know, if we believe in ourselves and lift ourselves up, we're going to be okay. And that the beer sort of reflects that idea that you, you know, dig down, come up with something that's going to make a difference in your life and in other people's lives. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, tell anybody anything but something that's a nice experience. And that's it. If you don't like it, that's fine. But. I love America, too, so it's, it, 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 it just sort of dovetails nicely. <laughs> if you have an eighth child, you're going to have to name him or her American, and then both of you. Uh, well, American-American. American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so we, you're coming uh, back. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you're coming back to Atlantic City this weekend. I know you're going to be yes. guest bartending at Rush Lounge at the Golden Nugget. I know you often stop right. over at the uh, Irish Pub or uh, some of the places on the Steel Pier as well. As often yeah, as I yeah. go to Atlantic City, I, I still haven't seen you down there. But whenever you go, it's really like a, an event. People line up to take pictures and have you serve them a beer. You really seem to enjoy Atlantic City. And this is a city that a lot of people around the country so often seem to get down on, to mock, to knock. In your view, and this is my view, I I think Atlantic City is a pretty special place. But in your view, Mm -hmm. what makes Atlantic City so special? Well, you know what? It's got a personal connection for me. When I was four, five, six, seven, eight years old, I used to go there every Easter with my granddad. Um, he would um, be hosting the the company that he worked with uh, at their convention there, and I always came along. And I, 
it was a great experience, and I love the city. I love that sense that the ocean is right on top of a, um, what is you know a thriving um, resort town. And uh, I just always thought it was the greatest place in the world. And so when I, I started the beer, I, I we only sell the beer now in New York and New Jersey. It's made in New York, but Jersey was always a part of it because I grew up there. And uh, Atlantic City is for me. I don't know. It's just it beats at the same heart rate I have. I just I love mm. being there. I love being a friend of the city. I love every place I go. Hard Rock Hotel, um, Irish Pub. We're in Ocean. We're we're doing this thing at Golden Nugget now. Um, bit by bit, we're going to try to just open up the whole city and make you know Faith American sort of Atlantic City's beer of choice. And uh, it's a it's a sort of celebration of my my youth and my my dreams and the city. Of of dreams that I believe is Atlantic City. I mean, Atlantic City has, you know, obviously it's got a, a, a rugged childhood and it's been through a lot of stuff. It's been a storied uh, of uh, ill behavior, but I, I love I love that town. And so I always just smile from ear to ear when I, when I get there. And uh, I think that is what brings people in, you know, we've, we've had a thing at Chickie and Pete's at Tropicana. We've done a few things. We were, you know, um, a few of the other bars and, uh, I, I love it there. Uh, Ducktown Tavern. And we're in some of the other restaurants and bit by bit. I, I just want to kind of extend my gratitude to Atlantic city. It was a place where I dreamed a lot of big dreams and, uh, to come back and, 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 you know, pour a beer there with some friendly faith people around just lights me up uh, we're talking with kelsey grammer uh, award-winning actor founder of faith american beer if you want to learn more about faith american by the way you can go to the website faith american brewing company.com i am partial to the new england style indian pale ale uh although uh, i have not tried the calico man uh indian pale ale yet uh kelsey do you have a preference when it comes to the beers that uh, that faith american puts out well, the first the first brew was the uh, the ale, the straight uh, Belgian ale, which is a four point five um, alcohol content ABV. They call it. Uh, that's my favorite. That was the, that was the very first one. The uh, the New England hazy IPA. That's the one you were talking about. I also just call it blue. It's uh, very popular. That one came out of the, the first batch like uh, gangbusters, and it's been selling ever since. Um, Bit by bit, we're sort of getting profitable. You know, it's a it's, it's a long haul with beer because it's oh, a big sure. volume business. You know, because I mean, I got to open up a few more states for us to really, uh, you know, crack the code. But uh, I'm sticking with it. And the, my favorite is just, just the Bell's Nail. It's a straight drinking beer. It's, it's a, it's it walks and talks a bit more like a lager, but it's uh, it's refreshing. And it, uh, you can have three or four or five of those if you want to on an afternoon and and sit back and relax. Uh, both the IPAs are a little more um, flavorful. You know, they have a bit a more complex flavor profile, and I'm uh, very happy with all of them. I've, I've, I've added a fourth now called Calico Moonlight, which is a double IPA, and that'll be out. Oh. Well, actually, I think it's premiering in Atlantic City this, this, oh, great. Uh, oh, this great. weekend. Yeah, 
there'll be a can available for everybody. <laughs> oh, uh, terrific. Uh, so people can go to Rush Lounge at Golden Nugget. Not only uh, meet Kelsey Grammer, have uh, you serve them a beer, but uh, they'll try the debut of this new uh, double IPA uh, from uh, from Faith American. And by the way, if people are interested in buying some of the beer and they can't make it to Atlantic City this weekend, I know Gristides here in New York has it, but uh, aside from Gristides, Kelsey, what is the best way for people to find a place that's carrying this beer if they want to try it so you go to the website you we list all our distributors there the distributors should have a list of where it is but the best thing to do is to walk into a store and say i'm in faith america and mm-hmm. uh be able to do it and, <laughs> and if someone say you can buy it at liquor stores along the boardwalk that are owned by a gal named janet who's been a big supporter of the beer and uh She's uh, she's got a store in um, in resorts. Uh, we're in resorts as well. She's got a store in the so you can do it uh, sort of retail there. If people want to buy the beer, that want to carry the beer in their bar or their restaurant, uh, what's the best thing for them to do? Is it to go to the the website? Contact the website, find out who the distributor is, or All we'll right. we'll connect them to it. If they can get in touch with us directly, we'll make sure they get some beer somehow, uh, check- some way. I'm going to get it to them. <laughs> check out faithamericanbrewingcompany.com i know you're traveling uh, i won't keep you but i do have to ask you i see the effort that you put into this uh traveling for promotion the effort that you put into um persuading people to carry the beer to try the beer i know you're working hard at this as you do everything i, I don't know you know there was a time where you were the highest paid man on television and i'm imagining you're pretty comfortable Financially, you don't necessarily need to be in the beer business. Most of my friends that have been in the beer business uh, don't exactly view it as a, a profit-making venture. Why do this at this point in your life when you could do anything you want creatively, artistically, uh, perhaps financially? Why spend so much effort on uh, putting this beer out? It's been a funny thing. Uh, a lot of this goes back to my grandfather who once spoke to me and said, you know, when we lived in Texas, this beer called Miller High Life came out, <laughs> and he said, and I thought about getting the, the, the champagne of beers, for it. right? Yeah. yeah, the champagne of bottled beer, and uh, he didn't do it, and he always kicked himself for not doing it, and I thought, you know what? So deep down somewhere in my head has always been this idea that we should have a successful beer company. <laughs> There's also this piece of land I have in upstate New York that has inspired a lot of the tastes and a lot of the flavors and the, and the experiences we've had there in the Catskills. Um, are reflected in the beers. It's about the land. It's about the work that we've had there and the, and the recreation that we've had there. And you can read that on all the cans. I, I usually write some little statement about why this particular beer of this particular set of flavors was put in place because it uh, is a reflection of our experience and uh, an extension of our love of where we come from and who we are, that we're just inviting everybody into a, into a part of that experience. So that's it. It's about it's about love. It's about a, a bigger hand reaching out to people and hoping that they, you know, enjoy it. That's wonderful. Well, if people want to see Kelsey Grammer, they could do so at uh, the Golden Nugget this weekend in Atlantic City. If they want to try the beer, you can go to faithamericanbrewingcompany.com. Uh, Kelsey, I don't think people would forgive me if uh, I didn't ask you for an update on the Frasier revival. I am uh, such a fan of uh, that character and that series. I'm very excited for uh, it to return. It's going to be on Paramount Plus. Can you give folks an update on the the timetable for how production is going or when people may be able to see the new series? 
I'm glad to. Yeah, we we just shot one last night. We shot our fourth show. We're shooting ten in this first order, um, and Paramount I think is planning to sort of trot them out in October now. I, I had thought it was going to be a little earlier, but it looks like it's an October run. They're talking about maybe buttoning up the season with a Christmas show. So uh, maybe that's in the cards. I don't really know how they're planning to release it. And uh, honestly, my job is just to make a good show, which mm. I think we're doing. There's going to be some new characters that people are going to just fall in love with. I've fallen in love with them. The audiences that we've had in-house at this point up to now have been over the moon about the show. It's been so exciting. And, uh, you know, we we, uh, we worked on it for five, six years trying to figure wow. out what we thought we wanted to do. Uh, we had one set of ideas. Those didn't pan out. And then it those guided us in this direction. And it's been it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. <laughs> so what the heck? And he's a great character. He's still, he's oh. still funny and still doing his best to make his way in the world. <laughs> uh, it, no, one one of the greatest. And, uh, you know, my wife and I are rewatching Cheers now. We're at season 11. And really the highlight to me of season 11, the last season, is the interaction between uh, your character and B.B. Newworth's character, Lilith, who plays Frazier's okay. wife and then ex-wife. Yeah. And then she came back, as many of the original uh, Cheers did for Frazier. I saw right. a headline somewhere recently that B.B. Newworth may be reprising yeah, uh, her coming. character. That's yeah. great. She's going to be back. Yeah, we're pretty excited about it. I'm directing that one That's uh, in a couple of shows. Yeah, B.B.'s in town, <laughs> which will be great. Uh, that, well, she's, that's, she's that wonderful. is exciting. Uh, she's uh, the the interaction between the two of you is like uh, is co- is comedy gold. It's absolutely outstanding. Lastly, um, you have been doing this great show. Uh, People can watch it on Fox Business. Kelsey Grammer's Battles for America. And it used to be that I used to complain that children didn't know enough about history. Uh, Far too often these days, it seems like not a lot of adults know enough about history. And that's why I think this show is so important, because it teaches history in a compelling and an entertaining, in a fun way. How are you enjoying being a part of that show, uh, Kelsey Grammer's Battles for America? I love that. And I love, you know, you struck on something that uh, resonates with me, this idea that uh, we've neglected our history. So it's easy to, you know, dismiss it. It's easy. Well, you know what's happening now with everything. It's to it's push people aside. Extraordinary people. Things that people who died for this country, people who fought for this country, people who actually had a vision about what this country could be. And uh, we're just dismissing all of that right now. Or even, you know, we're even in a world where we're canceling it. Uh, that's crazy to be who you are. And uh, I think that's part of the trick, isn't it? <laughs> oh, uh, that's for sure. You know, if you don't know who you are, you can be controlled. You could be told who you are, and then and, and, uh, you, don't, you don't have any frame of reference, so you don't get to stand up. So we, we hand over our freedoms one by one every day, and then uh, we don't understand why we gave them up. But uh, if we have a sense of history, we know they're worth fighting for. Mm, That's for sure. Uh, Talking with uh, Kelsey Grammer, six-time Emmy Award winner, three-time Golden Globe winner. Uh, Hasn't gotten that Oscar yet, but we'll watch him. uh, We'll watch the Academy Awards this weekend to see if maybe, maybe, maybe you're a write-in candidate. Let's see. Uh, Kelsey, it's always it's always a treat to talk with you. Uh, Good luck in Atlantic City this weekend. Have fun, and I'll look forward to seeing you the next time you're in New York. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Good to see you, man. 
it's great to talk with you. Uh, see him, Golden Nugget, uh, March 10th, March 11th in Atlantic City at the Rush Lounge. And who knows, you may see him along the boardwalk as well. Uh, if you are interested, just uh, follow Faith American Brewing Company. Go to faithamericanbrewingcompany.com. You can find out where do they carry it. You can find out how to carry it if you're a restaurant or a bar. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. 222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to comment on any portion of anything we're discussing, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. You know, I'm already planning my trip to Atlantic City, but my wife and I are in the midst of preparing our taxes for preparation. And I thought to myself, you know, last year, 2021, I did really well gambling-wise. I think I won, you know, between ten dollars and $20,000 at casinos. And this uh, 2022, I know we didn't do that well. So I started uh, going through the win-loss statements. You could download the win-loss statements. And I'm seeing so far, I mean, I'm still waiting to log in to some of them. I got to look up my password. I won this year, too. And I, I'm thinking to myself, how do I win all this money at gambling? And I still never feel like I have any money. I got to figure something else out. Maybe I'm buying too many drinks for people. All right. Until next hour. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of quick things. One, I meant to mention this earlier, and uh, but I just keep getting wrapped up into the guests we're talking to and what I was talking about myself. But uh, Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Minority Leader of Kentucky, was hospitalized last night after tripping at a hotel in Washington, D.C., those are all the details that we have on this. No details were immediately available about the 81-year-old Republican's condition. In uh, 2019, McConnell underwent surgery after fracturing his so- shoulder on a patio uh, at his home. So uh, we're certainly wishing him the the best, a speedy recovery. Um, whatever you think about Mitch McConnell's politics or anyone else's for that matter, last thing you want is to see anybody 
uh, hospitalized for falling. So we wish him all. We I think I speak for the whole audience in saying that we wish him the best. Speaking of hospitalization, there is one fundamental aspect of life, culture, technology that is going to define the world for the next five to ten years and probably far beyond that. And that's AI, artificial intelligence. Now, I've been amazed at how far AI has come just in the time that we've been on the air the last couple of years. It used to be I used to be amazed at the artwork that AI could put together. Then I was amazed at the the text that AI could concoct. I've written a sequel to Spaceballs using AI. I didn't write it. The computer wrote it. There's uh, song parodies, poems, any anything you want written, this chatbot can write. It's really phenomenal. But it's also incredibly scary. And I don't think there's anything that represents the kind of risks and rewards that the world of artificial intelligence does. This is going to transform every aspect of American life over the next few years. And it's already begun. Um, Some good news on the AI front. Using AI to detect breast cancer that doctors miss, Hungary, the country, has become a major testing ground for AI software to spot cancer as doctors debate whether the technology will replace them in medical jobs. Sure enough, in Budapest, they are they have these radiologists that are using AI technology, and they're seeing the AI is doing a better job detecting breast cancer than doctors not using AI. Two radiologists had previously said an X-ray did not show any signs that a patient had breast cancer, but and these this one radiologist. Dr. Eva Ambrose, a radiologist with more than two decades of experience, she peered at a computer monitor showing a patient's mammogram. This was after two radiologists said she did not have cancer. But she was looking closely at several areas of the scan circled in red, which artificial intelligence software had flagged as potentially cancerous. She said, this is something... She soon ordered the woman to be called back for a biopsy, which is taking place within the next week. Advancements in AI are beginning to deliver breakthroughs in breast cancer screenings by detecting the signs that doctors miss. And so far, this technology is showing an impressive ability to spot cancer at least as well and in some cases better than human radiologists. So that's interesting. Certainly interesting. Additionally, one of the things that we've talked about as one of the dangers of chat GPT is cheating in schools. The New York City public school system, for instance, has banned chat GPT from all its devices. You can't use it. Well, it turns out there was an article yesterday that teachers and students are now warming up to chat GPT. Teachers and students are using chat GPT, which is, again, something that creates text using artificial intelligence, regularly, and they see it as a positive force in education. This is according to a the first national survey of their attitudes towards the breakthrough AI platform. Many school districts have done what I just suggested, 
and that what New York has done banned chat GPT because they're afraid of plagiarism. But the attitudes among teachers are changing rapidly. There was a survey of 1,000 teachers, grades K through 12, and 1,000 students, ages 12 through 17, and it found high levels of adoption with teachers relying on chat GPT more heavily than students. 51% of teachers reported using chat GPT with higher usage among black and Latino educators for whatever reason. Teachers say they're using it for lesson planning, coming up with creative ideas for classes, and building background knowledge for lessons and classes. A third of students say they've used chat GPT for schools, including 47% of those 12 through 14. The poll uh, was commissioned by the Walton Family Foundation. Uh, just so you know where it's coming from, it's not a chat GPT research group or something. 40% of teachers said they use chat GPT weekly. And 10% said they use it almost every day. I feel like I should be finding a way to use it more. Middle school and high school teachers were more likely to use it for lesson planning, brainstorming, and building background knowledge than uh, preschool and elementary school teachers. Among the teenagers polled, 68% said chat GPT could help them improve as students, and 75% said it could hasten their learning process. So maybe we've been looking at this all wrong. Maybe the school systems, the school districts are making a mistake by banning this chat GPT technology. Maybe they should be leaning into it and using it as a way to enhance education. What do you think? 800 88% of teachers and 79% of students who have used the tool said it had a positive impact. Teachers who have not used ChatGPT were more likely to say it had no impact. So I, I think this is very interesting. Also, now we went through... Uh, Microsoft is going to implement AI um, and ChatGPT as part of its Bing search engine. Bing is a search engine competitor to Google. And Microsoft appears ready to invest big money and big technology infrastructure using AI to make sure that they can have Bing give Google a run for its money. Now, we told you some fascinating things about the beta testing of Bing and that version of ChatGPT including trying to persuade one reporter to leave his wife, comparing another reporter to Hitler, and all sorts of other things. Well, um, Apple looks like it is restricting some of these AI apps, including ChatGPT, but others as well, to people 17 years of age or older. So I think that's interesting because... Look, do you want, if AI is going crazy, as it was in the case of that, um, in the case of uh, that reporter that it was trying to convince to leave its wife, or the other reporter that it was saying it was was evil, do you really want it influencing children like that who could be in a pretty vulnerable position? I think not, not least until all the bugs are, are worked out. But then you look at this other survey about how students and teachers are saying it helps them educationally, and I'm very torn. Where do you come down on this? How do you think AI can be used to the, for the betterment of human civilization, but not so that it takes us all over and destroys all of humanity? 800 848 
on the military front, if there if AI does destroy us all, like in Terminator, this is how it's going to happen. We are increasingly relying on military weapons in an AI basis. AI-powered fighter pilots are now beating humans in real dogfights for the first time ever. Understand what I'm saying? You have two F-16 fighter jets, one piloted by a human, one piloted by artificial intelligence, and the AI pilot is be, is winning, winning for the first time. This is a big deal. You remember when Watson uh, the first beat Ken Jennings in Jeopardy? You remember when um, he, I think one of the chess players, I think it was Gary Kasparov, first lost to a uh, computer? Well, here now we are seeing human pilots, Tom Cruise and Top Gun, and his real-life equivalents, losing to computers. So air combat will eventually become artificial intelligence-powered systems battling one another. You're going to see the United States um, AI-piloted planes go up against Russia's or Iran. And I wonder what that means for the future of warfare. I really do. Uh, I don't imagine it's anything good. 800-848-9222. But here is where it gets really scary. Much scarier than plagiarism. Much scarier than, um, than military uses. Much scarier than uh, teachers using this. Everything we've talked about. Well, AI. AI is coming to the airwaves. That's right. Cleveland-based media company Futury has launched Radio GPT. Oh, no, no. That's right. The world's first generative AI radio platform. Radio GPT has the potential to transform the broadcast industry, uh, enabling companies to cut costs while getting rid of people like me. And while determining some, if not all, of a radio station's content. So the way it works is this. Radio GPT scans the web and social media to identify topics and trends in local markets. The platform then creates custom scripts which are delivered on air by AI-generated personalities using the underlying technology powering ChatGPT. Your favorite local DJ... Your favorite local talk show host, say it isn't so, could be replaced with artificial intelligence. So they've launched a uh, a demo site to showcase Radio GPT's capabilities. And um, the CEO of this company, company Futurai, Daniel N. Standing, told Axios that his company created Radio GPT to save radio. Not compete with it. Well, I don't know if I buy that, okay? I mean, I'm all for saving radio. But I think the way to do it is with more humans. I get what he's saying here. He's saying it's too expensive to have humans on 24 hours. And this is a way of having a little local element of personality that without having them, without having them paid. So uh, I am very nervous about this. I used to joke around about this and I used to say 
that, um, you know, if you were if were to replace all the talk show hosts on conservative talk radio with AI robots, um, that it would just be it would be pretty easy. You just have to have a robot voice say, um, you know, uh, Obama's a communist and lower comp- and lower taxation again and again. But uh, I am all of a sudden much more worried about this than I was previously. Uh, so uh, I really am quite concerned about this. I guess if you were to take your garden variety talk show host and uh, have them, I don't know, transformed into AI, maybe it could be done, right? Maybe it would sound something like this. Joe Biden has been a disaster on the border. He probably has dementia. The sooner he goes, the better. Right? I mean, that's that could that could take eight hours of the standard talk radio day. Now, you can't replace overnight radio that easily. For overnight radio, you got to be a little bit more nuanced, right? I wonder what an, an overnight AI radio host would sound like. I will believe absolutely any conspiracy theory or UFO story. Right? Okay, we're getting warmer. But I still don't know that it captures my unique, I don't know, gestalt, my unique appeal, the kind of things that make this program unique, my ability to connect with people as an entertainer uh, on a visceral level that really speaks to them. I mean, how could you have an AI host of the other side of Midnight? What would that sound like? I really like William Shatner. He is so groovy. Okay, well, actually, that's pretty frightening. That's a pretty stunning that she doesn't have my vocal intonations down yet. But um, I think content-wise, she's getting getting there. I also wonder, though, about, you know, somebody that's such a unique personality, somebody like a, uh, a Curtis Lewa, for instance, what would, what would that sound like if that were to be replaced with an A.I.? Imagine an AI person, because Curtis has, certainly has enough air shifts already. He could probably use a, a little bit of a break, right? What would that sound like? I guess it would sound something, I don't know, maybe something like this. Hush, hush, mush, mush, mula, shmula. Furniture upstairs rearranged in all the wrong places. Your complexion is your protection. All right, maybe it would not be as difficult as as I make it out to be. We'll we'll see. Oh, by the way, one other thing on the AI front that I'll mention. You know what they're doing? People are already using the chatbots as therapists with the emergence of generative AI raising new questions about technology's role in mental health. Virtually no one is suggesting you replace a compassionate human professional with a probability-driven neural network, but plenty of people seeking information or help say they appreciate the approachability and the low cost of an on-screen text box. So users are filling online forums with accounts of their experiences, casting ChatGPT as their personal therapist. In the ChatGPT subreddit, it's easy to find people offering examples of addressing trauma or attempting to improve communication skills with the technology. Others are sharing advice on what kind of prompts to use and how to get the best responses in chat GPT therapy session. And the low cost isn't the only lure. Users also praise the accessibility of the technology and the comfort they feel in engaging with it. So there's one quote that says, uh, as someone who has consumed a lot of mental health services in his life, I can say that I found chat GPT to be incredibly 
helpful, much more than many of the humans that I've interacted with. So it looks like AI is well on the path to replacing your radiologist, your local DJ, and maybe even your therapist and your fighter pilot. How do you feel about that? Does that concern you? Are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you optimistic? Some combination. Where do you come down on this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I think it's really quite interesting, um, but also very scary. All right. A bunch of people calling on other issues as well. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Frank, I have... uh... I have an AI thought for you, but I also have a wonderful Kelsey Grammer story for you and also a place that like you and your wife could go for the weekend uh, in the spring or all whatever. Right, I'll take them all. Give me all, each one of those. Okay, so um, I, I think your show is great because I listen to it and I have something in my brain and then you say it about Terminator, the rise of the machines. I've always thought this about AI. I'm a, I'm a nuclear medicine technologist, which is a subdivision of radiology. And we, we saw that starting to creep into us, you know, about analyzing the scans and everything in their cells. Back in the day, a doctor would just put the, uh, you know, piece of radiology film on the, on the light board and look at, look at the breast tissue or whatever. And now the computer is doing the thinking for us. But more, more importantly, more scary, like you say, AI is creeping into us, and uh, how about one day there's a change in um, um, congressional, there's a change in government, and what happens if AI can actually be a candidate and run for president? Is that a little bit scary? Or, I mean, look, the presidency has very specific regulations and things like that, but I don't think we're far off. From, say, um, certain localities allowing AI city council members or uh, supervisor. Right. Right. I mean, or, or jobs that are largely administerial, like um, like county clerk or um, or uh, city controller, state controller. I can absolutely see that coming in the uh, in the relatively near future. And I, I, I don't like it. Quite honestly, when you say I, I, you know what what happens with me when I stutter, I can't find words for the for the for the feelings that I have about it. I really can't. I, I, I want this to go back to, uh, you know, the 50s with Bing Crosby and uh, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra singing. I'll tell you. Uh, OK, off AI and the rise of the machines and Skynet, which I hope that Elon Musk isn't doing Skynet with all these satellites he's putting up there. Um, so I, I have this girlfriend who's wonderful Camille and it's her birthday on July 5th and we're upstate and we want to see fireworks there were none there so I said let's go back to Long Island and we're driving past a place called the Lobster Inn it's right on the that canal that cuts Long Island in half I know you come to Long Island with your wife to visit relatives you say it's a nice place out east and we go in we sit down we're eating and I look and I go is that Kelsey? Is that Kelsey Grammer over there? <laughs> who, who? His wife actually at the time, her name was Camille, and she looked like my girlfriend, who was you know, just great, great, wonderful, beautiful souls. And she goes, "Let me go to the ladies' room, and uh, I'll check it out." She comes back, she goes, "Well, it looked like him, but didn't sound like him." And 
later on we're there and I go, oh, just went to the men's room and I walked past and I said to her, it looked and sounded like him. So we're not, I never call myself a fan of anybody uh, because I think a fan is, it reminds me of Egypt, you know, they have that big palm, uh, palm leaves sure. and they're fanning someone. And I'm more of a person and in my, in my radiological uh, career at Stony Brook on Long Island, I've met everybody, celebrities, everybody. And they would, I realized that they were just people. And I had a short radio show and acting career. So we didn't run up to him and his wife. We, we went outside, and suddenly fireworks went off, which is what we had been looking for. And it was starry sky. I grabbed her gently by the hand, and I started waltzing with her. And there were, I'm trying to remember, three or four children that came to the sides of us, and they started doing the exact same thing. They were mimicking us and giggling. And through these French doors, this comedic gentleman breaks through, which I believe he is one of these people, like Kevin James, I think, plays himself in The King of Queens. I had been in an improv group that Kevin was in, um, and someone got him an audition. There he goes. But through these French doors breaks out who I would say was Frazier. And in that bold voice, he goes, children, children, stop mocking those couple where they're <laughs> dancing and they're in love. And I have always wanted to meet him again and say, do you remember that? So there is a place. Um, if you and your wife ever go upstate, you, you would take the Palisades and I think then Route 16 to the New York State Thruway. And it's exit 19, the Kingston exit, Frank. Then there's a traffic circle. And you, you, choose, you can go to Kingston where you don't want to go. You can choose um, Route 28 North. And you proceed north. At 17 miles, there is this quaint town of Phoenicia where you find these restaurants and shops. And it's the tubing capital of the world if you're... You know, if you want to put yourself in a Eddie, I just want to try and get to a couple other people before Brian killed me. If we could just bring that this to a close. Okay, I'll, I'll, ra- I'll wrap it up. So Phoenicia is a great place. Sweet Sue's, pancakes, everything. So then you go up to Margaretville. And that's where Kelsey Grammer's brewery is, Faith America, um, which I've always seen myself sitting at the brewery with him having a beer and recreating cheers. <laughs> so what, what, a, what a nice, well, well, like yourself, you're genuine, you know. This is probably what you felt interviewing Kelsey Grammer, but just a good, genuine person. Uh, Eddie, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Thank you. That's awfully nice. Uh, Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes. Good morning, Frank. Quickly, because I know you got to get Kelmead in. Uh, About Grammer and then about AI. Uh, About Kelsey Grammer, I worked with him for nine months. He's got to be one of the most generous, thoughtful, and intelligent people I've ever worked with. It was he invited the entire cast and crew of La Cage La Faux to his wedding and reception at wow. the Waldorf. Do you realize how much money that must have cost this guy? Hundreds and hundreds of people at the Waldorf. I mean, oh my God. Uh, second, about AI. Jesse Water was on the other day, and he was, you know, giving a speech, and I kind of noticed something was a little off. And then he said, he goes, that entire segment that you just heard was not me. It was AI. Not only did it write the segment, it was speaking in my voice. And Frank, Frank, it was his voice. Uh, I I thought he was lip syncing what he was reading. No, he he was lip syncing. I'm sorry, he was lip syncing. So now it not only writes like you do, 
but it sounds like you it, do. So on the radio, we really wouldn't know it's not no, you. No, it's absolutely incredible. Incredible. Thank you, Ray. This is a demo. This is from the demo website from that Radio GPT, that AI service which is billing itself as a way to save radio. What do you think? you think it's going to save radio or help hasten its demise? 800-848-9222. This is, this is for real. This is not a joke or anything or something we produced. Radio. Every voice you hear on Radio GPT is 100% AI. Here's what's trending on social media in Springfield. Discovered and delivered in real time. On Radio GPT. Everyone in Springfield seems to have an opinion about the proposed new state law that would make it illegal for dogs to stick their heads out of car windows. The idea is to keep dogs safer, but many pet owners say the law would take away one of their dog's greatest joys. What's next? Will they make it illegal to fly your airplane hand out the car window? Live, made locally in Springfield, and 100% voiced and powered by AI. This is Radio GPT. I'll tell you, for a bunch of computers, that sounds pretty good. I wonder how close we are to AI callers. Although, I'll be honest, if someone told me that E. Frank was an AI caller, I wouldn't be shocked. I I would not be blown away. Hey, uh, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000, and then we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade. Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Two, two. If you are the seventh caller and you think you have what it takes, you'll be asked to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do it, you will become a thousandaire. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you want to know what kind of music we're playing, join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook, and we list the songs there each and every day. All right. Uh, without further ado, uh, let us see if someone has what it takes to win some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let's say hello to Joe in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hi, jo- Frank. It's Jeff. Oh, it's Jeff. Oh, according yeah. to Kenneth, it's okay. Joe. Uh, so if you win the money, we're going to have to send your check to Joe rather than Jeff. For hearing, uh, for hearing lessons. Yes, exactly. All right. Um, Jeff, have you heard this segment before? I have. Do you have any proof that your name is Jeff rather than Joe? 
I have a driver's license. Okay. All right. We're going to ask you to scan a copy of it and send it over to uh, to Kenneth along with uh, a signed affidavit. Uh, if you're ready to go, Jeff, if that's your real name, we'll get started, okay? Let's give it a try. All right. What is the date of April Fool's Day? That would be April 1st. Who gifted, what country gifted the Statue of Liberty to the United States? France. What longtime South African prisoner went on to become that country's first black president? Nelson Mandela. Who is the current chairman of the Federal Reserve? Dennis Yellen. Ah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it is uh, Jerome oh, Powell. Jerome Powell who testified Powell. in Congress this week. A good guess. Janet Yellen okay. is the uh, Secretary of uh, of the Treasury. Treasury. But uh, no, the one that's raising interest rates with a whole lot of gusto is uh, Jerome Powell. So you got three Powell. questions right. You lost on question four. Hang on, Jeff, and hopefully you and Kenneth can work out why he insists on calling you Joe, and we'll give you a consolation prize. Okay. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Jeff. Call again. We'll we'll talk soon. Meantime, uh, we have the great Brian Kilmeade uh, on the line, nationally syndicated author, co-anchor of uh, Fox and Friends, and uh, a guy that has a resume longer than could be listed in only a four-hour program. Brian, it is great to talk with you as always. Thanks for joining us. What's going on, Frank? How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Maybe not as good as you. I don't know that uh, that anybody uh, that just anybody can say that uh, they were satirized on Saturday Night Live, but you can. I mean, I know they were taking kind of a shot at you and your colleagues, but I have to think that's pretty flattering. I don't know. Um, it's just to me, I, I, they, they become like a news organization. I, I mean, it's it's like MSNBC, you know, with a laugh track. So I, I, you know, I, I remember when they first did it, I would in the middle of these skits, I'd be getting text messages from people I never heard of. You know, I guess about 10, 12 years ago, they started with this. And uh, now it's at the point where, I mean, I, I waited to the next to the next day. And I before I got a few people say, hey, you know, you're an SNL. I, I think that. I don't really think it's flattering to it. I'm not upset by it. It's kind of indifferent. I didn't think it was funny. Uh, it is just to me. I'm thinking to myself, that's the Colbert Kimmel right. uh, uh, formula of pretend as if it's funny, but you're really trying to make a political point. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think it's still kind of cool. Uh, if a show with the history of Saturday Night Live. If you could be made fun of by them, I don't know. I think that's kind of neat. But uh, I get. I totally get where you're coming from. That they used to make fun of everybody, and now it's just totally a yeah. a, a one sided affair. Hey, I know you were back in Florida uh, again this week, and uh, I'm. I mean, I know that a lot of New Yorkers like going down to Florida, but it seems like you're in Florida all the time now. You did a great show from from Tampa. Uh, tell me what you're hearing from the folks on the ground there about what's happening in the country, either legislatively in Washington or as we gear up for the 2024 presidential race? Well, I mean, uh, the reason I went down is uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, we wanted to go, uh, you know, we're trying to get him on the weekend show, and he said, when my book comes out, we'll do it. So we went back to his field in which he, they uh, qualified for the Little League World Series. The Massapequa people know what that's like. When you qualify, it, it changes the whole town. It was 1991 when he did it. So we went back to the field in which he did it, and then we, we walked on that field. He insisted on going to the same field that he practiced with, that his parents uh, brought him to every single day, that they practiced three times a day. You know, when you make those 
Little League All-Star teams and you compete regionally, you got to sometimes – you give up your whole summer, so do your parents. So he went back there, and we found in his Little League office, we found the 1991 signed photo uh, when they went to Williamsport and, and the team, and it was just funny to see – him back there. And then we had a serious conversation. You'll see that Saturday and, and some of it on Monday, and you're going to hear it unedited on the radio. Uh, we were talk, just talking about a guy that's probably two months away from declaring for the presidency, what his take is. And uh, we actually even had a catch on it on his field. We supplied the mitts, but we had to take them back. So instead of just missing a day of work with radio, you can bring it. So I brought it to Tampa. We had a local affiliate down there and was able to do it from a local diner on Fox and Friends. And what I'm finding is uh, 70% of every crowd that we go into is from another state, and they have moved mm-hmm. there recently. 30% A, I've been here for a while, or I, I bought in 2012, but the rest have, have made a choice to be down there. And I thought one of the most insightful things was from this guy from Texas. And he goes, you know, I've had a place here forever because I love boating, and I go to Texas because I live there full time. I said, yeah. And he said, my message is stop coming. And I said, what do you mean? He said, change where you live. Don't just move. So it is true. I thought about that, too. The more you think about it, if we just keep moving away from the problems, you can become an increasingly divided country. It would be great to sit there and say, you know, I'm going to put people in office that are going to stop uh, raising taxes, that are going to stop jamming this curriculum down this next generation's throats that's going to be a little bit less anti-American that's going to make things a little bit more liv- uh, livable instead of politically correct. And when people see this, they throw up their hands and say, I, you know, I, I can't handle New York City's politics. I mean, why is Lee Zeldin not the governor here? Maybe because so many people left New York. They, they went somewhere else because they were fed up. And now they're talking about raising taxes again. Now you got the federal government is going to now look to raise taxes to 40%. So now, for the upper brackets, people make, I guess, over 400000 Congratulations. Now, every $10 you make, you give four of it to the federal government, and who knows what the local government in New York is going to take, and the city government's going to take. Why would anybody who likes their money stay in a country and a state, not a country you can't do anything about, but a state, that wants to take it all, even though you're working twice as hard and it costs more to live here. Well, and, you know, to your point about uh, country you can't do anything about, we actually have in recent years seen a, se- a lot of Americans renouncing their citizenship for these tax havens over bro- uh, you know, abroad and becoming citizens of other countries uh, to reduce their uh, their tax burden. I think that was at least part of the reason that uh, Gerard Depardieu and Steven Seagal ended up, uh, ended up uh, calling themselves former Americans. It is interesting. Hey, do do you think, first of all, I love what you said about um, Curtis Lee always uses the phrase improve, don't move, about staying where you are and improving yeah. your own community. And I think it applies to a lot more than just politics. I think the same could be said for education. It could be said for uh, local yeah. civic engagement, local churches, everything. And I think if everyone took the approach, let's improve our neighborhood, our block, our town, our city, our state, rather than run away from our city's problems, I think the everybody would be much better off, irrespective of, uh, of folks' politics. But given all the amount of time that you've uh, spent in Florida these days, 
Do you think Florida has moved from being a purple state, a swing state, to being a permanent red state? Because the numbers that DeSantis ran up in that governor's race last year certainly look that way. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I was in, believe it or not, Tampa is Democrat. They have a, they have a Democratic mayor who ran on a post. So it traditionally does go to Democrats. However, in this last election, it went to DeSantis. And what people are looking at is they're not saying what a charismatic guy he has, you know, what he is. They're not saying, you know, uh, look at uh, look at all the things. You know, look at what a great speaker he is. Look at how he raised our profile. They just say, look how he made our life better. And what they do, they remember is they were able to get back to normal as quick as possible, and they were able to get their kids back in school, and he watched their back when all these other waves came in, and he said, no, these are the rules we're sticking it out. Remember, they were looking to vilify him nationally every time those numbers went up, and the parents had their choice. They said, yeah, I send my kid to school, or I could could keep him home or her home, and they appreciated that. It was on pure performance that they did it. So I do think that it is red. But if you have a poor-performing Republican governor go in there, it, it will begin to switch. I mean, it will. they, they want people to get things done. So, and if you start taking that away or if, you, if, you, if you're the next Republican in there and you, and you want to act like what many people perceive as Democrats, that would switch the two. But they did say when Governor DeSantis took over, there were 100,000 more Democrats and Republicans, and that has basically switched. Wow. Hey, I mean, uh, obviously, I think most people view Ron DeSantis as a likely candidate for for president next year, even though he hasn't officially announced. He's doing everything that uh, presidential candidates do. He's raising money nationwide. He's written the book. He's going city to city around the country. Someone else that has been talked about out of Florida as a presidential candidate is the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. He's viewed as a rising star in GOP circles. And even though he he might not be a household name the way Trump is and even maybe the way DeSantis is. I'm wondering if people should be taking his prospective candidacy seriously. What do you know about the Miami mayor, uh, Francis Suarez? It's, I'm so interesting because I have not heard from him lately, but every time I did talk to him, I did this thing for What Made America Great called the, – it's the most successful immigrant story that nobody talks about is what happened in Little Havana. Where these Cubans in the 1960s came here running from communism and these doctors would do, would do anything. They would do your laundry. They would clean your house. Uh, they would put a roof on your uh, building just because they wanted to be successful. And they, they rallied together, stuck together. And Little Havana is now a powerful political organization, successful area, uh, a thriving community. And he is an example of that. His, his parents came here fleeing Fidel Castro. And people love him in that area. And he also made that that, that – uh, the Silicon Valley of Florida, and he keeps on inviting these companies there and says, no taxes, get out of that hellhole in San Francisco, and a lot of them are coming. And they and they did note that he took an, took a salary in Bitcoin. I don't know how happy he is now about that, <laughs> but he does not get along with the governor. So I also know Rick Scott doesn't get along with the governor. So there is a faction within the Republican Party, including Governor Sununu, that doesn't get, they would have no problem running against DeSantis should he get in. So and I don't think Suarez is necessarily anti or pro Trump. He's kind of in the middle. So there might be a lane for him. I'd be very curious to see if he gets in there. So it would be interesting to have a Cuban. You have an Indian, another Indian governor uh, of Indian descent, uh, an African-American. 
I'm sorry. What's the party of diversity? If when Tim Scott gets in, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair point. Yeah, and uh, they say Suarez has been taking meetings with people like uh, Robert Kraft and uh, Larry Fink, uh, the former governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. I think he'd be a, a really interesting candidate. Although, I mean, I think it's going to be very, uh, very difficult to break through with uh, Trump and DeSantis getting all this free media a- attention. Do you subscribe, Brian? You mentioned the growing Republican field on the presidential front. Do you subscribe to the conventional wisdom that the more presidential candidates there are that are not named Trump, the better it is for Trump because they divide the anti-Trump vote? You do. Yeah, absolutely. And you heard Governor Hogan over the weekend. Uh, You know, there's not much momentum for a moderate uh, governor who doesn't look like a print model uh, going for the nomination. So he says, you know, I'm going to stay out. And Governor Sununu told me uh, on the side about three weeks ago, and I think he might have said it on camera, that there's going to be a big push in the Republican Party. If you don't have a shot, get out. Uh, they're going to gang up on you. Remember how Kasich got, had no momentum. He just wanted to try to win Ohio where he was governor and successful, and he hung out. He won one state by one point, and he just hung around and hung around. And then same thing with Senator Ted Cruz had no shot. He kept hanging around. Uh, and they said that if you just kept one, if there was just one, it would have been a lot harder. You know, Rubio got knocked out in Florida. Jeb Bush got knocked out almost right away. So it left it left the nomination for Trump. Now, the thing is, I think that Trump is defying all expectations. I, I think that he is doing better than anyone thought. I think his message is, I am your retribution. His speech the other day for 90 minutes where he talked about what he did, not uh, the 2016 win or the 2020 loss. I thought it was very intriguing for would-be opponents. And I also talked to somebody very close to Trump who said to me that he told him not to run. He said, you know, the country's never going to vote for you. You only got the Republican Party in your base, and he's not going to hear any of it. And then he talked to DeSantis, and he said, if you don't start hitting back, he will define you as an incarnation of Paul Ryan hmm. and Jeb Bush and George Bush and you will not be, by the time you announce, you'll be dead on arrival. Now, one thing I did ask him yesterday, and you'll see over the weekend, is are you worried about being defined? And he laughed, Governor DeSantis, and he said, how could people define me? You already see my record. So you see what I'm doing. People say I'm Paul Ryan or, or Jeb Bush. It doesn't even, doesn't even make sense. But I think when it comes to marketing and labeling, no one's better than Trump. But also nobody's tougher than DeSantis. Maybe Trump, uh, but just as tough. Um, it's going to be interesting, just a lot younger with the military and Ivy League background. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting. But I do think the bigger the field, the better it is for Trump because nobody has as many supporters as him. And I think that if there's a clear choice, uh, Trump could be in trouble. But he is, much, Frank, I don't know how you feel, but I think he's much more formidable than we than many people, including me, thought he was in January. No, I mean, um, you know, people were were counting on two hands the number of indictments that he was going to have to run for president under, and now it doesn't look like that's going to be a, a hurdle at all. It's uh, it's fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating to watch. But um, I, l- let me ask you also before we uh, before we let you go, and I know you got a busy day on uh, Fox and Friends and on your nationally syndicated radio show, and I want to ask you what you have planned. You are a sports authority. You're also also a uh, an expert in branding and communication in messaging in leadership 
What is going on with this Tiger Woods scandal? A big story in the New York Post today involving Tiger Woods and his ex-girlfriend. I mean, I read yesterday that Tiger Woods is the second highest paid athlete of all time. I got to think that he needs this like a hole in the head. What's your read on this situation? Unbelievable. I mean, can this guy, his personal life is such a mess. You'd think that he, you're learning in your 20s. In your 30s. I mean, it was just a few years ago when we saw him unconscious at a light. Right. Uh, with the car running all smashed up. And then we found out he had a drug problem. And then he gets in that other horrific accident because he's, uh, let's just be the take the politically correct answer and just say he was in a massive rush in the morning, drives off a road and sh- should never have survived. Thankfully, he did. Has a horrific car crash. And you think to himself, you know, what kind of personal decisions are you making? And now we find out the girlfriend who... People that knew him said that this girl is just perfect for him because she just looks out for him, couldn't care less about the fame, used to work at his restaurant, and they got a chance to know him then, and and they had a friendship, and they started dating. Now we find out that she was lured out of the house and then thrown out of the house, not allowed back in even to get her stuff, and now she wants to break her her nondisclosure agreement and come out and talk about how abusive Tiger was. I mean— this is unbelievable. Number one, if she is making it up and no one has any idea if it's true or not, uh, what a terrible judge of character. And if she's not right. breaking it up, how could we ever give him another chance after right. this? She's <laughs> saying he's abusive to her. Well, we don't know what that means. Could be verbal abusive, locking her out of the house abusive. But we don't know anything else after that. So here we are. We like the father-son thing. His son's emerging as this great golfer. We see what a great parent he seems to be. And we, we see how the, the next generation says he inspired us. And the kid that was uh, looked at as an arrogant young man who, never, who thought he was better than the field now is all of a sudden embraced. And then this happens. So, uh, again, uh, personal decisions people make. We don't know the, the details. But uh, he, as great as he is on, as spectacular he is at times in golf, he's that spectacular of a failure personally. And, um it's up to him to work it out, but he's Oof. doing it. This is the old time. This is the 1980s when Tyson and George Steinbrenner, and we were used to watch all this controversial behavior take place in the back pages of the sports pages. Tiger Woods is like the last one left. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. Uh, lastly, Brian, radio, television, and the weekend, what do you have coming up for what's in store? I'm going to break down the GOP side with Gerard Baker of the Wall Street Journal, Jonathan Ward. He talked about the China threat, wrote a book about it, best-selling, next generation. We got the threat assessment yesterday on Capitol Hill. All the intelligence apparatus heads were there talking about what we should fear of China and what they're up to, and they did it in front of the public. Uh, Carol Markowitz on why she what we just talked about the New York Post writer who who was so sick of having her kids locked out of school she moved to Florida and continues to write for the New York Post and wrote a book about it uh, what the big difference is as a parent not mm. as a journalist so she's going to be joining us and taking everybody's calls too so that's terrific uh, I know Carol and she's a great person we miss her in New York uh, please give her my best. You got it, Frank. Thanks so much. Thank you. Brian Kilmeade. Check him out at Fox and Friends on his own nationally syndicated radio program as well. One of the best guys around. Hey, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can. 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Tomorrow's Friday already. I can't believe it. This is The Other Side of Midnight, a terrific song from Stevie G and the Soda Jerks. It is available on iTunes for 99 cents. It's uh, the best investment that you can make. It's an investment in entertainment and investment in mental stimulation. Without further ado, it's your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Brian. Yes, Frank. I'm calling about Mayor, the Mayor Adams. Anybody that hangs out with him or, or talks to this bum, he's, they're no good too. Just like him, they look for p- your favorites, like PBA cards, special things. Mike. Morning, Frank. Frank, radio AIs. It's the dog and the human. And if you're lucky, you'll get the job feeding the dog. <laughs> Charlie. Zip Rosenberg is not a moron. He's a genius. He's a very talented broadcaster. The caller who calls in and says, says a moron. He's the actual moron. Pete. Says a moron. Says a moron. Says a moron. David. If someone you want to date tells you to sign a non-disclosure agreement, don't date them. That is good advice. Raji. To defray the astronomical banquet and hotel expenses in order to appease the ungrateful marauding migrants. Now our senior citizens' food stamps are being drastically reduced. On that note, uh, that slams the lid on things for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Ask Frank anything in our first hour. And an Oscar preview. Frank Morano, good day.